Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me is a dear friend. You've seen him all across the country in either My Fair Lady or The King and I. You might have seen him on Broadway for a hot second in Carousel. Uh, please welcome Mr. Sam Seamock. Hi, everybody. Hey, Matt. Hello, Sam. <laughs> How are you doing today? Doing well. You know, just drinking coffee, hanging out. Me, me too. Uh, how did I do with your intro? Was, was was there any major credits I you wanted me to bring up that I just didn't do? Oh no, that's fine. Yep. So we were talking about a specific Stephen Sondheim musical, Sam. Are we not? We are. What is that talking, musical? This is Pacific Overtures. Yes, that old yeah. ditty. What was your experience with it before I asked you to do this episode? Okay, so. For a long time, it was one of the Sondheim shows that I knew the least about. And then a, a couple of years ago, I was actually cast in a production uh, as Kayama Yesemon, uh, who is, you know, the, the, the show, he's the samurai who, who slowly becomes westernized by the end. Um, but uh, I had to back out of it to do another production of something else that, that, that conflicted. Um, it was a, a good problem to have, but, you know, I would have loved to do the show. But I had spent a couple of months before I had to drop out. I was, you know, I, I watched the show. I read through the libretto. I, um, am, I, I'm still obsessed with Bowler Hat. I think Bowler Hat's a brilliant song. Mm. Um, and I had like, I, I was in the process of learning it and analyzing it because I was like, this is Kayama's most important moment in the show. Mm. Um, and it's basically the thesis of the show is, is Bowler Hat, um, more or less. And so I was like, this is, one of the most important moments. I want to make sure I get it right. And it's a real, it's a real meaty gift of a song to give to a, a performer. And uh, yeah, so I, I know it, I know it fairly well, probably more than, than your average person that hasn't done the show. Um, but that being said, I do not, I do not know the show very well. I, I, I haven't done the show. I, I don't know it as well as somebody who's like done the, the full dramaturgical work. Um, but I'm a fan of the show. And I'm a big fan of Sondheim. Um, yeah, that's my uh, that's my basic, that's my relationship with it. I really didn't know much about the show growing up. My intro to Sondheim, is, like a lot of people, was Into the Woods. But like the first time that I got into a Sondheim show, knowing it was a Sondheim show, was probably Company. It, it basically went it went um, Woods, Company, Follies. Weirdly enough, although, um, but at this point. 
I don't think that'll be weird because I will I will have recorded the Follies episode and you all will understand why Follies was so early in my life. Um, yeah, Pacific Overture's always kind of like escaped me in high school. I think because it was a story that on paper didn't really interest me so much as a musical. I also like history was a subject in high school that I did not do well with. And this felt like a history musical. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to like it. I don't do well in history. And what got me exposed to it was actually Emerson. I don't know if you remember this junior year, um, uh, our dearly departed Stephen Terrell and mm. Scott Wheeler made us do uh, show a week essays. Right, right, right. Right. And we could pick any sh shows that we wanted. They had to be something we didn't know super well. And unfortunately for me, that meant like I had to find the most random ass of musicals because I knew most of them. Some people were like, some people were like, oh, I'll do, I've never actually listened to Cabaret. And I'm like, I have to go find New Girl in Town starring Gwen Verdon because I don't know shit about that one. Uh, <laughs> I wish I knew nothing about South Pacific. So there were three musicals that we had to do that were like mandatory. Three Penny Opera, Porgy and Bess, and uh, Pacific Overtures. And the way I'm that glad the show, they did that, yeah, yeah, the way that it worked was no one ever really knew exactly how the show weeks were supposed to go. If you were supposed to like write about the plot, or you were supposed to deconstruct the music, or like maybe just one song, because I felt like we turned them in, and like you would get either an A, a B, or a C, like any random week, and you didn't know exactly why it happened. Uh, so Pacific Overtures, I remember I actually analyzed Bowler Hat because I didn't know the show super well. And I listened to the whole thing and there were some things I liked, some things I didn't. Bowler Hat definitely stuck out. And there's a video of the original production that was broadcast in Japan at the time that it had come out. And now it's on YouTube, which many people have watched. And I sort of put it away in the recesses of my brain since then and kind of kept it away because it doesn't really pop up much, especially in New York Pacific Overtures. I think it's popped up once since you and I both graduated college, which was the classic Right. Stage company stage production. in 2017. They yes, also, yes, they yes. had the, there was a 20, 2004 revival starring B.D. Wong as a reciter. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, which I did not get to see. Me it neither. Was my, yeah, it was my freshman year of high school. I could have seen it, but again, it was, I knew very little about the show and the word on the street that the, was the production wasn't super good. But the only thing I really knew going into Pacific Overtures was my grandmother worked at Lincoln Center for a very long time, basically like the late 80s to the early 2000s. And that B.D. Wong production was a uh, an adaptation of a production from the new National Theater of Tokyo, which I sent you a clip from. Um, and right, the Dave, Someone in a Tree. Yes, and they did that production at Lincoln Center at Avery Fisher Hall, now it's David Geffen Hall, uh, the summer of 2002, and it was all in Japanese. And that was so successful that they uh, brought it to Roundabout and. Uh, brought it back to English but my grandmother had seen that production at Lincoln Center and she said she had hated it on Broadway originally but she really liked it at Lincoln Center and uh, she said something about the whole attitude was just better um, so that was also like in my brain of like huh that production worked really well so clearly like there's a production out there that many people can like grasp onto it's I think it's just about aesthetic uh, <sighs> what's someone looking for uh, preferences Right, right. And the, the original is such, it's so specific and mm -hmm. stylized. And it's because it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's basically Hal Prince and John Weidman were like, let's make this, uh, let's base this on Kabuki theater. 
Let's have some, some elements of Kabuki, some elements of no, and, and you see yeah. it in the, in the design elements, uh, you know, the mask work, the, the makeup, even the stylized acting choices. Very much so, it's yeah. It's very much, it's very classic Japanese theater, which to be fair, like disclaimer, I am not an expert on Japanese theater. Um, any more Don't than- Don't worry, I know. am, I know oh, all perfect, about yeah. it. <laughs> I'm, I am, I'm half Thai. Uh, my father's from Bangkok, but uh, I was born and raised in, in New England. Uh, and so I basically have the New England understanding of Japanese theater, more uh, or less. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, to be fair, so did Hal Prince and John Weidman, really. Like, Well, you know, John Weidman, actually, uh, he has a degree from Harvard in uh, East, East Asian, Asian history. Thing. Yes, yeah, so which East is Asian how the show thing. came to be. Yeah. Right. So I, you know, I started I started this deep dive into, into this, not knowing that. And then I found that out and, and I just... Um, as a Sondheim lover, I end up loving uh, John Weidman in this. Mm. It's like, I, like I have so much respect watching the show and being like, okay, everything that anything in this that is accurate, I think we can thank John Weidman for that. Uh, yeah, he definitely he was the source they all had of like, is this um, uh, historically accurate? Is this uh, actually you know topical? John Weidman, I mean, he also did Assassin. So like the two probably most uh, historical pieces that Sondheim has created have been with John right. Weidman. I think his greatest contribution is writing the libretto to Big the Musical, but we're not talking <laughs> about Big the Musical. See, I, I love Assassin's. Assassin's is, is maybe my maybe my second favorite Sondheim. Interesting. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I do think like, oh, you know, a lot of that is John Weidman. And I, I, I look at those Sam Bick monologues and like, that's all Weidman. That's not Sondheim at all. I love Sondheim. I love Assassins, but you know, it's, it's, I do. I really like Assassins. I've only seen one production that really like kind of got me. And that was the Oh four one, but I don't want to go into Assassins too much because I'm recording that episode in a week. Of course. Yeah. And it'll be coming (laughs) out like, it'll be coming out like six weeks after this episode comes out. Yeah. We're talking about Pacific overtures, but it's all related. Um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so let's just get into it. Let's get into this goddamn history. We've been talking yeah. long enough. Let's 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 give the children some information. So, it's important to first remember where Sondheim is at in his career when he comes to Pacific Overtures. The '60s were not the best of decades for him. He really kind of comes into his own with Company in 1970, follows that up with Follies in '71, and then Night Music, a little Night Music in '72, '73, and Company makes money and is you know lauded in the community if not by all the critics follies has an even more passionate reaction from the community if though it loses its money and sondheim wins tony's for both he wins another tony for night music that one actually is popular makes a bunch of money they get they sell the movie rights send in the clowns is a huge commercial hit randomly and on top of this help prince as a director is like finding a lot more success with all of these shows and he does a revival of candide which is sort of credited for giving Candide a whole new life and Sondheim contributes some lyrics to that in 74, 75. And we get a revival of Gypsy with Angela Lansbury in the seventies that everyone goes like, oh, it's not just Merman. The show just works and Sondheim's a genius and all this stuff. And basically like riding, riding high. Uh, If ever there was an equivalent of musical theater people having like a Hollywood blank check, because, you know, in Hollywood, a lot of times directors will get blank checks. Like, um, there's a whole podcast about it, but like James Cameron does Terminator and True Lies and like gets the blank check for Titanic, which then clears. 
and then gets a major blank check for Avatar. Now Sondheim kind of has his own blank check because like now not only is he critically lauded, he's now making money. His shows are making money and they're becoming culturally relevant. So everyone's like, yeah, no, whatever he and Prince want to do next, like whatever it is, we'll give them money. Basically what happens is John Weidman, whose father, Jerome Weidman, was a book writer and had written the book for Fiorello. John Weidman uh, studies Eastern Asian studies at Harvard and gets a degree in it. And he wants to write a play about Commodore Perry's uh, treaty uh, with Japan, the with trade negotiations in the mid 1800s. And originally it was this big realistic play and he was writing it and he sends it to Hal Prince and Hal Prince being Hal Prince reads this play about Commodore Perry and the industrialization of Japan. And he goes, this is a musical because that's <laughs> Hal Prince is like um, the dictator of Argentina and his peroxide blonde wife. That's a musical. Uh, the Nazis in Germany in the early 1930s, that's a musical. Uh, it's just what he does. It's how he works. Mm-hmm. And he brings Sondheim in and he says, I want you to work on this. This is a musical that I want us to do together. And Sondheim has said that like he and the entire team, except for maybe John Weidman, kind of went into this kicking and screaming because they're like, we know nothing about Japan. We're not Japanese. It's not our right to tell this story. Like th- We are such outsiders. And the way that they kind of found into it is Prince said, well, I want to make it kabuki. I want to make it highly stylized. And I want it to sort of be like a Japanese artist comes to Broadway, sees a Broadway musical, and then decides to write his own version of a Broadway musical about Japan. So it's like layer upon layer upon layer. And that was sort of how Sondheim was able to find a way into it. He also talks, and you're more musical than I am. So when we get into this, please like, school me because I read these words and I'm not entirely sure what they meant. He talks about the music writing for Pacific Overtures because he was like, I don't want to make it precious. I don't want to do essentially like what Disney was really well known for doing, which was like taking one grain of a sound from another culture and then just blowing it up to like billboard size. And so all of America thinks like, that's the sound, that's the culture. Right. Just like um, making some pastiche of like, oh yeah, this is this, this is the sound that we're going for. He exactly. does a really good job at not doing that. Yeah. Um, so like I was taught, I was saying in the West Side Story episode, like at the time that West Side Story came out, all that America really knew of quote unquote uh, Latin music was, you know, Saludos Amigos, the Disney cartoon or Mm. um, things like that. So there was no real knowledge of it. And so Bernstein or Bernstein, I I never really truly know how to say it, but his whole thing was making an impression of Latin music, not doing something that was 100% accurate, but finding this blend of musical theater and Latin music to create a whole new sound that has its fingers in both. And I think that's sort of where Sondheim was trying to go with this as well. Sondheim talks about the Japanese pentatonic scale mm-hmm. uh, has a minor modal model modal modal feeling yeah. and it reminded him of the um, Latin composer Defala. So in order for him to like compose, he basically just attempted to imitate Defala, which allowed him to create this hybrid music. I would love to hear your thoughts on that as you are a much more musical person than I am. So I read those words and I was like, I don't know what these words mean. Yeah, I, the, you know, the, the pentatonic scale, it's, it's just when we think of the, the sort of Western major scale that you, you know, is in sound of music, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, you know, mm-hmm. um, it just cuts out a lot of those notes. A pentatonic scale is, is uh, 
No, I, I'm not, I won't even, I wouldn't even be able to sing it, but let, I mean, I have my guitar right here. Grabbing like, the guitar. Um, yeah, grabbing the guitar. Here we go. Hmm. Something like that. I'm yeah. not a great guitarist either, but yeah, you know, it, so it's, but so yeah, it, it, uh, it takes out a lot of notes of, of what we've traditionally hear, but that, but that's, you know, in a lot of rock music from like the eighties onward, you hear the pentatonic scale, these power chords just sort of being like firsts and fifths, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just, it just creates this really open feel. And that sort of Japanese art mm. in general is, is fairly open, you know, like you're, you're, you're painting something, not using a ton of colors, but it's about the line. It's about the form. It's about the shape. It's a lot about the white space, you know? Um, and that is, that's, that's in the visual art. That's in the musical art. That's in, that's in art. Yeah. It's definitely a less is more approach. And Sondheim also says that he was at an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and saw these three uh, Japanese panels. And the first panel was completely white. There was nothing on it. The second one was 98% white with like a little bit of a tree branch on there. And then by the third panel is this explosion of color of this blossoming tree. And so that kind of helped him also get an image of the score of sort of uh, a feeling that he wanted to obtain from it. And yeah, there are like a lot of research went into the show. Like again, really good intentions and and really for uh, for men who this is not like their world or even their story to tell did a lot of work to do as well as they could uh and that's nice uh and we'll get into whether how successful you and i both think it is as we get into the show but that is where we start with the writing um basically this takes like about a year like a year maybe a year or two to to come together this is also the last show where hell prince has a new set designed by boris aronson his set designer who did company and follies and night music and the original mm -hmm. cabaret so this is his last set design and they kind of try to blend a whole bunch of different types of theater kabuki no uh there's another one i'm forgetting and i'm terrible for forgetting it but it's been a long day sam and i don't appreciate you yelling at me about it right you know if it makes you feel any better i forget too i think of kabuki and no and yeah again not a japanese art historian or anything nope 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 <laughs> but they do try to kind of put that in the design into the writing very presentational uh sondheim says this isn't a story about people this is a story about themes and ideas and I think that that's sort of a constant struggle that sometimes people have when doing the show. Uh, and we'll get into that more about later productions and critical reception and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, they go out of town. They also had a, they had a hard time casting it at, uh, or so they say they basically went from New York and LA to get a fully Asian cast. It was very important to them to not have any uh, uh, non-Asian people in the company. They didn't want to. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about that, this is 15 years before Miss Saigon. Yep. When and Miss Saigon casts Jonathan Price, who Game of Thrones fans would recognize as the the head sparrow or whatever he is. You know, he's the religious yeah. guy. Um, but they cast him as the engineer, who's a, a biracial mm -hmm. French Vietnamese uh, nightclub owner. And uh, so, 15 years before that, 
Yeah. Sondheim and Prince and Weidman and Pat Birch, the choreographer, are looking specifically for a fully Asian and Asian American cast. Yeah. Uh, the show comes to Boston in 75, where it is annihilated. The critics absolutely hate it. To be fair, the show went through a lot of changes, had a different opening number. Chrysanthemum T was different. I think the finale was different. They made a lot of cuts. They bring it to Washington, D.C. for two weeks where it's more appreciative. And then they come to Broadway in 1976. Uh, I have the exact date. I believe it is January. All right, January 11th of 1976. Kind of mixed reviews. I'll get to them in a little more specifically, but something that I find is a theme with Sondheim is he always remembers his reviews as much worse than they were. He talks about West Side Story and how hostile the reviews were. He talks about company and follies. And I'm like looking through a lot of these reviews and I go, there are some people who would kill to be described the way that you're being described in these reviews. Uh, even if they don't like the show all that much, they're like, what he's doing is really important. So go see, like the reviews for Pacific Overtures, even the critics that don't like it have nothing but praise for him. And even if they don't love everything he does, they're like, the fact that he's doing this is really important. So like, go see the show so we can have more shit like this. Uh, but he, all he focuses on is like, well, they said they didn't like it. So I was trashed. It's like, no, you weren't, dude. Calm down. Classic man, Sam. Here's <laughs> one bit of criticism. And he's like, ugh, why do I bother? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. Any other tidbits that I'm forgetting on this history before we go into the show itself? That's, that's all I, that's all I know of. You know, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was a relatively smooth writing process uh there there's not like a lot of drama of oh we have to swap this person out or this terrible thing happened they did say they had a couple of different bomb scares during previews on broadway jesus uh, right they they didn't really uh basically what happened was like the second or third preview there was a rat in the ceiling in the standing room area at the winter garden which if you've ever been has very low ceilings it's a very wide almost circular theater it's actually my favorite because you can have these big productions that still feel, feel very intimate and someone's hearing like a noise in the ceiling over um, like one of the lamps or something hearing like all the plaster crackling and they freak out and they shout bomb and they evacuate the theater that's understandable in like 1976 to hear that and then the next day someone called in a bomb threat which apparently was just like de rigueur in the 70s like around opening nights Patty says it with Evita she's like if you didn't get a bomb threat on your opening night you weren't a hit and it's like Sure, Patty. That's an old school New York was a <laughs> what a place time. to be. Wild time. Yeah. Everyone was bumping cocaine in their dressing rooms and and bomb scares were happening on opening night. Take me back to 1976, Sam. <laughs> yeah, you have to walk over all the, the crushed syringes on your way to the stage door. Yeah, that's how you were able to warm up your feet to do point on a on a on a Broadway stage. <laughs> you were tiptoeing around all the crushed syringes. Um Let's get into this show. What's the first thing you want to tackle? What's like the thing that you really just kind of want to say all the things you want to say about? Huh. You know, I sure. I mean, should we go through it from the from the beginning? You you say you don't want to go like you know. Synopsis, oh yeah, I, just, I don't love going like bullet point by bullet point, uh, right. especially with these later Sondheim shows that are much more conceptual. And like Pacific Overtures does technically have a plot, like it goes from a point A to point B. Right. But the way that it kind of does that is a little. Um, choppy intentionally so it's like not it's not really meant to be a super linear story it's one specific story from different perspectives and each perspective gets a little bit of time all over the place it's very um 
Quentin Tarantino in that way, where it's like, yeah, here are nine because, different people. And the story is also it's it's less it's less about one character's journey uh, mm-hmm. than it is about the rapid westernization of an entire nation. Yes, um, from a, a period of of strict isolationism to sudden globalization. Yes, and uh, so it's it's more about this this grand theme, and and so there's no way you can do that in a two and a half hour musical um, without it being a little stilted, but it's also, it's also, uh, created, it's crafted that way, uh, to, you know, he says in finishing the hat, he, he crafts it that way. He and, he and Weidman, uh, to give it that feel of this isolationist country that, that has sort of these, these cultures and these traditions that are, are difficult for outsiders to penetrate. Yeah. And so, and so if it's, if it seems inaccessible at any point, it's, crafted to be that way yeah yeah we'll get into it uh right. i will say <laughs> if you think if it works or not you know? <laughs> yeah whether it works or not well so no we'll get into it. we'll get into it later because i have i have certain thoughts which is just purely from a theatrical standpoint um and that's just me uh i think that when people talk disparagingly about sondheim they think of a show like this, or at, least in, at the very least in its original incarnation, which as you said earlier, was very stylized and meant to sort of be emotionally distancing. Like it was very important to Hal Prince to not have this be uh, about human beings, but rather about broad concepts. And as you said, like it's really about a country as a whole and really kind of chronicles 150 years of history in a very short amount of time. And there's something to admire about that, but you also w- do lose a little something when you forget to write about human beings because we need something to connect to. Like you have to give your audience something to hold on to. And it felt like with the original production that Sondheim and Prince were like, no, absolutely nothing. You must do all the work yourself, which is, again, admirable. I'm happy to do the work, but there are times where I'm like, I, I'd really love an emotion right now. Mm. But that's just me. I will say there are moments in this score that I absolutely adore, uh, including one song that annoys Sondheim himself. That's actually probably my favorite song in the score. Oh, which is that? We'll get to it. Okay. I'm, all right. I'm, now I'm curious. Well, it's called teasing, Sam. I am. Okay. All right. I am. Some chrysanthemum uh, teasing, if you will. Are you fucking happy with yourself? <laughs> I'm very. Oh yeah, I'm very pleased. You know. Good. Well, are you pleased? Hello, would you say? Oh, okay. All right. Here we go. We can we can both <laughs> play this game. This show actually reminds me a lot of ways of Fiddler on the Roof, if that makes sense, where mm-hmm. both opening numbers you have tradition in Fiddler on the Roof and the advantages of floating in the middle of the sea in Pacific Overtures, where you are establishing to the audience, here is the world as we know it. Here is our society. Here is our culture. Here is how things are done. Remember this, because over the course of the next two and a half hours, it's going to change completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between this and Fiddler 
is Fiddler goes through the society, like, here are all the people in our society. Here's what they do, how we're all connected. Again, it's not human beings. You have the father, the mother. Advantages of floating in, in the middle of the sea are about, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Arrangement. Yeah. So like everything, everything is arranged. Everything has its place. The arrangement of the screens, the arrangement of the rice, the planting of the rice. You yes. Know? And uh, the, oh God, why can't I think of it? It happens in Bowler Hat when, um, uh, what's, it, what's his face? Uh, not, Kayama? not Kayama, no, the other one, the fisherman. Manjudo. Yes. He is doing the um, procedure of uh, the tea. Right. And and uh, there's like a certain word for it. I am so the juxtaposition. Yeah, I'm just I'm, no. It's um ceremony, like ceremonial. A ceremony, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, mm -hmm. oh my, I am so <laughs> my brain is so scattered. It's a I pandemic, will, you know. All yeah. of our brains are scattered. Well, like I'll think of something like juxtaposition is a word that like I have no problem remembering. Right. Fucking ceremony. ceremony. I don't know why that was uh -huh. so hard to think of. Yeah, but yeah, it's 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 a lot of that where it's about it's again they talk about the show's not about people, it's about ideas. That's very evident in the opening number where it's a tradition in Fiddler, but instead of the people in the society, here's all the ceremony in our society and right. how we do things um, as a whole. What I love about it is there's there's like a majesty into the about the music in this song. It's like a it's really almost like a big traditional opening number uh you know it like really i think it really just grabs you and then it does a total 180 about five minutes later but after the song but yeah no i just really like it and the 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 um uh god damn it i can't think of any <laughs> words today um the like the the underscoring when it begins the it's i don't know it just it quickens your pulse a bit mm -hmm. on a, just on a purely theatrical level. I find it very successful. Yes, I think so too. And you know, while, while next, which is the finale, while that's not my favorite song in the show, it might be one of my least favorite songs in the show. Mm -hmm. um, there are the uh, repetition of, of some certain lyrics or mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the mirroring of them, the sort of advantages of floating in the middle of the sea, you know, Kings are burning somewhere, not here. And, uh, next, they say kings are burning. Next, you know, yep. it's yeah. So the kings are burning here now. You know, so it is the the very, very. Uh, you know, he uses the lyrics multiple times throughout the show, and there are some lyrics in Bowler Hat that are reflective of chrysanthemum tea, and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he does a great job at they they all do a great job at, at making these these themes, bringing out these themes, bring out these ideas, and then saying here's how they exist in the history in the isolationist history, and here's how they transform after this event. And I think, I mean, also, and I, you know, I'm no historian again, but I, I think when it comes to Japanese history in the 20th century, after World War II, I believe there were sanctions against them that prevented them from having a standing military, mm -hmm. or at least a large standing military. And so, uh, while yes, I think I think culturally Japan just just has a certain 
like the, there is there is a certain amount of of arrangement and and OCD just built into the structure of the culture, mm-hmm. which is I think I can understand why Germany and Japan were allies because I think it's very culturally there's there is a there's an industrial an industriousness and uh, and organized that, it's very organized an organized industriousness that lends itself to global domination, um, but um, you know so so with these with these sanctions in place you have a booming economy and you're not going to put trillions of dollars into a military. You're going to put it into economic development. You're going to put it into technological development. And maybe if America had put trillions of dollars into economic development and, uh, and technological development, then we wouldn't have been surpassed by Toyota, but we were too busy building tanks and drones. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are now. And, and that's exactly where we are right now is that we have this giant military and how does a giant military prevent, uh, protect you from, uh, micro microbial threats you know the the biggest military in the world can't can't protect you from COVID-19 nope not at all that's America is crazy we we put we put so much stock into things that like don't help progress and it's sort of like you know we're also we're so like um divided in that respect and and it just it keeps us from really kind of moving forward it's like every time we make any progress it's through so much kicking and screaming that it's like it shouldn't have had to take all this effort to get us three feet right and that's also part of the that's that's democracy too right that's that's when everybody has a say mm -hmm. there are going to be people that are pulling back and people that are pulling forward and it becomes a tug of war and sometimes when you have a king chula longcorn when you have an emperor meiji uh when you have a a ruler that says nope this is what happens is what's going to happen and the populace has no recourse for saying, no, we don't want that to happen. Because if you say, no, we don't want that to happen, um, maybe you won't be alive. Like, yeah. you know, look at, look at uh, China, you know, look at, at countries where you have this strict authoritarian rule and they can make progress very quickly uh, because there's, it's not safe to be a detractor in those societies, you know? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying, not saying that Japan or Thailand in the case of Chula Longkorn, um, not saying that they're similar to communist China, but you know, in the sense of having a strict. Well, uh, there's no, nothing is 100% anything, you know, like, of there, course. Yeah. Uh, except for me, because I'm 100% right all the time. But oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is why you're on the podcast. I'm like, I will only get people on who are 100% <laughs> correct. They have, and, and correct means agreeing with me. So, yeah. No, it's, yeah. And the, and the show, I don't know if, if Pacific Overtures, ever sort of fully explains that like the old ways quote unquote of Japan were better there was they they imply that there was a tranquility about feudal Japan before right. westerners came in which uh, and and a grand sense of tradition and ceremony but I don't know if they necessarily say it was better it was just more that right. about the ways in which they were brought into western uh culture was not through their own agency but rather through force and right. that was not okay. Right. Uh, it's it's less about it being better than it being Japanese. Yeah. And and just being purely Japanese, and then uh, on their own terms. What happens? Yeah. yeah. What happens to those customs when somebody else chooses for you? But well, also that... historically speaking, you know, uh, what's interesting is you know you look at Please Hello, and you you have the the American, the British, the Dutch, the French, the Russians, and actually, before Commodore Perry got there, and 
I'm I may be I may be wrong, but I don't think so. The Dutch actually were able to trade with Japan. They were the only Western country that that had a port. It was there was one port that the Dutch were able to get into. So there are some, some historic liberties, some historical liberties with the show um, to to make it. You know, they were still they still had access to Western philosophy, Western ideas, yeah. um, but it was more according to their terms. They had Dutch studies. They had they had uh, you know they were they were studying the West through the Dutch that were coming through. Right. Um, and so Commodore Perry just uh, came in in a very American method, which is come in guns blazing, you're a cowboy, and you mm -hmm. tell everybody that they need to do what you say or you're going to kill them all. That's very American. Yep. Um, and uh, and that specific overtures, that's the, the inciting incident, right? That, that absolutely is. And in fact, that's how the title of the show came to be because in his letter to, I think, the president, President Fillmore, he says, you know, we are going to create Pacific overtures to Japan. I'm paraphrasing so much right now that what I'm saying is probably not even close to what's in the letter, but that's the the gist of it, um, which is it was his poetic way of saying we're coming in and we're going to tell them the 150 years or 250 years, however long it was of you being alone and not trading with us is over now. We gave you we gave uh, we gave you time in your room for the next for you know a couple of years and now we're coming up there and we're telling you to come down to dinner and you're going to eat what we tell you you're eating uh which is not great right but at, and at the same time i think that i think that in a a world that is full of billions of people i don't think that it's fair to be isolationist and nationalist i think i think there you have to engage with the world outside. And so, you know, I think, I think probably both methods were not, were not the best. I, you know, if you're going to be completely isolationist and, and shut out yeah. most of the world, eventually the world is going to want to see what's going on with you and in the world and, and, and your country and they want to engage. It's a double-edged sword. There is a, there's an order, then there's a system that seems to work in the sense that you know the country's doing well. You are, uh, you are continually running. You don't seem to have any like major issues in the way that other countries do. But at the same time, you're not progressing really in any way, and you don't really know what the people of your country think because they are being told what to think and they are being closed off from so much of the world. They're not getting any other influences. They're just being told this one thing. And as we said earlier, that's the ending of, of Pacific Overtures is it's like a, it's a darkly positive ending, if that makes sense. Right. And even as time progresses in the productions, it's interesting to see because they have these interjected facts yeah. about Japanese culture and its and its impact on the world. And seeing the difference between 1970, what is it, 1976, mm -hmm. seeing the difference between 1976 and 2004, um, so much changed. 
and yeah. Japan got even more culturally powerful. You know, the the new the the new play, a new musical, soft power. They talk about soft power, the idea of uh, that true power, true cultural power, isn't about shooting guns and and winning wars. It's about getting blue jeans, getting Levi's into an African village. It's mm. getting your getting uh, you know your cultural products spread across the world so that everybody uh, everybody in America is buying Chinese products. Everybody in America is is using Chinese products or Japanese products in, in this sense. But you know they talk about um, in 2004. One of the things that stands out to me is uh, the best selling car in Detroit is the Toyota Camry, and Detroit being you know the automobile manufacturing capital of America and for a long time the world mm. um, and by 2004 Japan had overtaken Detroit and now you know you look at the economic crisis and the bailing out of GM and all that and like you know we'll see if Ford and GM are able to be 21st century companies yeah. um, Toyota will be absolutely they also had one fact about how GI Joe the uh, wholesome American toy were all manufactured in Japan right yeah so it's like, yeah, no, you guys get to play with your little toys, but we get the money for it. So, right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an, it's a, I know it's not either one of our favorite numbers in the show, but it's a good finale next. It is smart. It's very smart. Yes. The whole show, I would say, is very smart. Yes. Um, yes. So we talked about the opening, we talked about next. Uh, there's, there's a song, the second song in the show. There is no other way, which is not even sung by uh, Kayama and his wife, but technically speaking, they're sung by spectators because that right. is the style of uh, very Kabuki, Kabuki, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, very Kabuki. And I think later productions have made it them singing to make it more personal. But again, you know, in the original production, like it's not about people, and right. this song doesn't do it for me. I don't know about you, especially after the excitement of advantages of floating in the middle of the sea, right? which apparently the original version of that number was called We Float and it was much more um, Eastern, wasn't didn't have as much of a Western musical theater structure to it. And when they were out of town, Prince was like, we need to make this more of a number. And Sondheim's like, well, re Sondheim, okay. Sorry, my brain's all over the place. Sondheim, no, thank you, thank you. Sondheim talks about with like shows like West Side Story and Gypsy, he works with Jerome Robbins, who is, as I've said before, I think he's one of the few geniuses we've had in theater on a directorial level. Right. Even if he, pretty much everybody in the business could acknowledge it, who is just a horrible asshole of a person. Oh, <laughs> worst, worst human being ever. But it also is a testament to how much of a genius he was that everyone was like, he's the worst human being, but I would work for him again in a heartbeat. Of course. Um, and I'm not saying that like, oh, it's worth the terrible... Uh, actions, yeah, yeah the, the abuse. Well, and I've said this before, he wasn't a smart man. He wasn't an intelligent man. He was a genius, though, at what he did. If he were more intelligent, he would have been a better director of actors. He would have been able to get them to give him the results he wanted in a healthier way than how he did. He got the results he wanted, but he didn't know how to express to actors how to do it because he didn't really know about psyche or interactions or you know or actorly pursuits he wasn't a scholar and i think in the same way that a lot of people are harshest about the things that they're most vulnerable vulnerable about robbins was sort of the same way mm, okay but he had 
and again, I'm not saying like, oh, well, that makes it okay. It doesn't make it okay. Like the shit he did to some of those people, calling Larry Kurt a faggot during West Side Story rehearsals to make him man up, like that's not how you get an actor to do what you want. That's not how you treat a human being. Right. But what he had this innate sense of was what an audience needed if they were going to come to your show not even just like paying a ticket, like if they were just going to sit there and take in what you're saying. Because uh, we talked about this earlier, Sam, but like I, when I give a negative comment on something, I work really hard to word it in a way that it can be understood because I don't think that negative reactions are any less valid than positive ones. But if you can't figure out how to express it in a way that the other person will listen you might as well not say it. It's just, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Right. And yeah, there's a big difference between being critical and being cruel. Yes. Uh, ironically, Robbins was cruel, but he did know how to make an audience uh, listen to your show. Right. And you, we hear it time and time again. And Sondheim has said like, oh, well, I learned a big deal about that in terms of uh logical reasoning and theatrical reasoning uh logically speaking this might make sense but the show needs this to work as a piece of theater so you go with with that bit and as i listen and read more of his later shows with hal prince i find that there are times where he just like either he forgets that or he just decides to not do it where he goes more into the logical and what's realistic so with um pacific overtures the original opening was much more realistic and he was angry that they went with the newer version because he thought it wasn't as true to japanese culture and prince is like yeah but we need to get the audience to listen at first and if we right. give them an opening number they can't understand they're gonna have their you know ears covered for the rest of the show mm-hmm. and sometimes still is not really pleased with that and i'm like i don't know i'm of I'm, I'm of two minds with that my i would say my mind that thinks you need to not pander to your audience but you also need to show that you don't hate them as well and be like fuck you you do all the work mm-hmm. uh, or as, as you know bart Shear was giving a note at one point for the king and i and he what it, what he said that stuck with me is okay they're you know we want them to have a good time talking about the audience we want them to have a good time but on our terms right and that's ultimately what crafting theater is about it's like yeah we want people to have a good time but we want them to do it on our terms start talking to me about musical theater i'm gonna nerd out about about all of it so uh well you're on the right podcast sam (laughs) you've known me for a long time now you should have known what you were getting into this is absolutely my mo uh this all this all came from there is no other way in adventures of uh advantages of floating in the middle of the sea and there Uh, is no other way and i think i think ultimately you know the title of the song and that and that recurring theme is the most important part of the song that there is no other way is like because of the isolationist tendencies of Japan, they don't they don't know about the other things, and so and so it is the sort of she's and she eventually kills herself. Um, she does because uh, there is no other way. According yeah, uh, as far as she knows, she's isolated from these events that are happening in Uraga. She only knows about what's happening in her home, 
And because of that, she doesn't know what's that Kayama has been promoted mm-hmm. to governor to, and she takes her own life because there is no other way. And that's the, that's a, the mentality at the beginning of the show is ultimately what the song, you know, serves so to do. What we're saying is if the opening is called the advantages of floating in the middle of the sea, there is no other way it could also be called the detriments of floating in the middle of the sea. Yes, for sure. I think we just made the show a little better. That should yeah. be the real name of the second song. Mm-hmm. They should probably keep the lyric. There is no keep other the way. Because it is just yeah. a different title. <laughs> uh, like, okay. What? I don't know. Like I was trying to think of another Sondheim song in a different show where you just keep all the lyrics and just change the title so much that it, you're like, wait, why is that the title? I don't know. Mm. Chrysanthemum Tea is a song that, it's hard for me to define because it's the first song since Advantages where I feel like there's a little bit of a Western uh, attitude about it. For sure. It's also, people always talk about like Please Hello or even Bowler Hat is like Sondheim kind of bringing a lot of his more Sondheimian lyrics to the songs. I think Chrysanthemum Tea is really the first Sondheim toned lyric in this show. For sure. I think it's my favorite song in the show. Um, They're my favorite lyrics. how fun it is. Yeah. They're my favorite lyrics. It's not my favorite song. We still haven't, I still haven't told you my favorite song. That's true. We haven't gotten there yet. We'll get yeah. there. We'll get there. You and I will um, get there. It's a journey. But yeah, I, I love Chrysanthemum Tea. Um, it's an ambitious song. You know, it's a, it's a long period of time and, and he goes, you step into like the priests and the soothsayers and, and um, yeah. And, you know, in the, in the original, I should say, this is Alvin Ng playing the Shogun's mother. Mm. Um and he did the revival, of, right? He he did the revival. He did the revival. He's he's done it so many times, and he's done. He's probably most famous for doing flower drum song like mm-hmm. a million times. Um, but he in the Asian American musical theater community is, is kind of as close to nobility as you can get. You know, he's he's mm-hmm. somebody that everybody knows of, and everybody loves, and he's just this kind guy who's you know, and and you know he's an an, age, an, an older actor now, and like, mm-hmm. but he's had a whole career and. Um, he's a real standout in the show. You can see, you can, his, you know, in the cast recording, you can hear his connection to the song is really, he's really fantastic. Oh, he's got a, I love his voice. It's one of the few really like theatrical singing voices in the original production. The other one is um, Mark Sires, who plays yes. the warrior in Someone in the Tree and is the original Magaldi in Avita. Yes. And he actually is a fellow Emerson grad. No way. Or, was actually you know he had a very promising career i did i did research into it because i, I was watching the show and i was like who is this guy he's a, he's another standout in the ensemble you know yeah no he, and, uh, he really had a car crash work. right he died in a he, car crash he died in a car crash he was only 30 years old yeah um and you know he had this he had this full career ahead of him where he was all these great role he, he uh played king herod in the revival of jesus christ superstar in 1979 yeah. or i have it yeah it was between overtures and avita it was yeah. a very short-lived revival of Superstar. No, he had a very promising career. And luckily, he's his voice is preserved on Overtures and on Avita. He's got this yeah. really beautiful baritone. And he's a very, he's a good-looking guy. I mean, you, you see him in the in the production here. Um, yeah, he had, a, he had his whole life ahead of him. It's really sad. Yeah, it is sad. But, uh, yeah, and what's interesting about the, you know, kind of non-secretive, but it's interesting about this filmed production is I, I, you know, Googled it quickly. Like, how many how many shows have been filmed on stage? and uh, like Broadway shows. And the, it started, the list, at least on Wikipedia, started in 1981. And so this must have been one of the first 
Yeah. Uh, one of the first shows that was, that was taped in its entirety. Um, and I can't help but have empathy for everybody on stage who knows like, oh my God, this is getting taped. This one performance uh, is gonna be forever. And, and there are moments, there's some moments where it's not a perfect performance. Every yeah. once in a while, there's somebody like stepping on somebody's line or something. Um, yeah. And I think that that's nerves from there being all these cameras <laughs> in the house. Yeah, it's, it's, I think part of the reason why it probably wasn't listed in the thing you were looking is that it wasn't broadcast in America. It was broadcast mm. in Japan. And I don't, I think part of it is, I think there were definitely nerves. There must also have been some kind of attitude of no one in America is seeing this. This is going to some, this is going across the ocean. Uh, it's a one-time thing. And no, this won't ever be broadcast on CBS. No one ever knew what the internet was, was or the idea of YouTube. So I hope that those that have survived that production are pleased that it has survived all of this time. I hope so, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really wonderful that it's out there still. Yeah, because it's a very interesting kind of filming because there were musicals filmed of Broadway shows, not necessarily in the theater when it was being performed, but like in a studio, but it still was like the same as like designs as the stage. Like Carol Burnett had done Once Upon a Mattress on TV a couple of times, but like on a soundstage. Mary right. Martin did Peter Pan on a soundstage, even if it was the original staging. This might... I don't want to speak out of term. This might have been the first Broadway show, Broadway musical anyway, to be filmed in its entirety in the theater for something that like wasn't archival purposes. Right. So yeah. interesting. Very interesting. And and part of its legacy, part of what it leaves behind. Uh, Chrysanthemum Tea is a is a song where there's a structure to it. It's telling a story. There's an there's a beginning, middle, and end. I also do love the soothsayer's total bullshit verse where he's talking about like he's basically telling the shogun everyone's telling the shogun everything he wants to hear in regards to you know the ships at the bay and what do we do do we and everyone's just saying like all these calming things of like it's fine it's fine it's all everything's great um which is one of the the disadvantages of being a totalitarian yeah is that everybody is going to tell you what you want to hear mm -hmm. um not necessarily what is best for everybody exactly um, and that's a Trump like, administration, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> and and just like uh, Japan, that administration is now floating in the middle of the sea. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> what's interesting, historically speaking, you know, they took some liberties here. The the the, the whole poisoning that didn't happen. No. You know, that, that's it's a fake thing, but it it definitely makes it more dramatic. Oh, yeah. Um, and that that was one of those things where they kind of had to go. Uh, what are the events? How did the events come to be? can we manipulate the coming to be of the event? So the end result is still somewhat the same, even if how it happened is not true. Cause we need some more dramatic tension. We don't have a lot of right. dramatic tension right now. Yeah. Um, we, need to, we need to show this progression of Lord Abe rising to power because he's going to be a major character throughout the yeah. whole show. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I, but I, in regards to the soothsayer, also played by Mark Cyrus, by the way, yes, I do also love... in a standout little ensemble role there. He, he stands out as the Russian ambassador. Yep. And the... don't touch the coat. Yeah. He is the soothsayer. He has a line where he says, um, "Some uh, success, whose success I cannot guess." <laughs> it's great. And it's great lyric. It's a great lyric because he's trying to tell the Shogun what he wants to hear while also covering his tracks because his own career as a soothsayer is on the line. So if he it's says something, too. Yeah. And is that like if he if he's wrong about this in the future, 
even if it's not what the Shogun wants to hear, like that alone will kill him. So he's trying to tell the Shogun what he wants to hear while also like being as vague as possible. So he can be like, see, I was kind of right. Mm -hmm. It's the day of the ox, my lord. With but three days remaining and today already waning, I've a few further shots, my lord. To begin, let me say, at the risk of repetition, there are ships in the bay, and they didn't ask permission, but they sit there all day in contemptuous array with a letter to convey, and they haven't gone away, and there's every indication that they still plan to stay, and you look a little gray, my lord. Have some tea, my lord, some chrysanthemum tea, while we plan if we can... Poems. So... This was a song I had to watch a couple of times, speaking of Emerson College. As you know, our senior year, second semester of our senior year, we get to do Sondheim. Finally, mm -hmm. we're allowed. Because yep. at the age of 21, 22, we're finally hardened enough and old enough to understand the lyrics of a Sondheim Menopausal. song. Yeah. 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 I, I can finally <laughs> sing Could I Leave You at the age of 21, 22. Right. I watched two boys in my class sing poems a couple of times. This was an interesting song because it was in speaking of the man who we spoke of earlier, he was telling these two boys how to like find the dramatic uh, structure of the song in terms of how it's a competition and how you're sort of feeling each other out. And if it, it was an example where I felt as if um, an idea was being imposed on something that wasn't necessarily inherent in the lyrics because the lyrics are you know they're they are made up haikus on a journey back from one location to another and these two guys who sort of uh grow closer together just through the sheer uh taxation of their journey and then getting a sense of each other from their inventiveness with the haikus and right. i actually and it's, to be fair they're not actually they're not real haikus because haikus are, are five syllables seven syllables five syllables yes so they're kind of like yeah like fake Oh, yeah. Haikus. Well, yeah. So Sondheim said, no, none of the haikus in the show are actual haikus because the haikus in poems are not the actual uh, number of words in a haiku. And then the ones that are, are the actual words are too specific in their imagery and their messages. And haikus are kind of meant to be sort of vague. So mm -hmm. all the ones that the reciter says, he's like, no actual haiku goes like this because it's way too transparent and they're not supposed to sort of be that way. Yeah, I think I think what poems does well, uh, at least, you know, it's what, what it seeks to do for sure is, is show the difference in these two men at the mm -hmm. beginning of the show. And one of them is this strict traditionalist for the most part, the samurai who's sort of brought up in this, there is no other way mentality. And suddenly he meets this guy who has been to America, he's been to Massachusetts, he's seen that there is another way. And he comes back and he says, there's, uh, they have a conversation, they have this heart to heart, and, and he says, Manjuro is like, they're not the barbarians, we are, because of this, because of this, they have this, they have this. And he, he is so disparaging of Japan because of what he's seen in America. And, you know, they're walking back and they're, they're reciting these poems to each other. And Kayama is, is, pining for his wife and his home and, and his poems reflect that. And all the poems lead Manjuro back to America. It's like, oh yeah, it's so poetic. It reminds me of the roads to Boston, mm. you know? 
Um, and so it shows like, okay, here are these two guys. Here's the traditionalist and here's the westernized one who has sort of uh, been Americanized in some ways. Winding into streams like the roads to Boston. Your turn. Haze hovering like the whisper of the silk as my lady kneels. Your turn. Poems is a song also where, musically speaking, it is very... Um, I don't want to say simple, but it's it's stripped down and it builds to this actually really lovely uh, sweeping atmosphere towards the end when they sort of sing together, which mm. is very unexpected because it takes a while to build to it. And I always sort of resent the first minute of poems because I don't love the orchestrations at the beginning. And then when maybe because I'm just a basic bitch, once it gets <laughs> to like the sweeping violins, I'm like, ah, oh, I really like this part. <laughs> So. And, so, and it's so musically, it's it's kind of, I don't want to say archaic, but it is, there is something to traditional music that that has, there's a drone involved or or like a, a, a very repetitive thing. Like I, I, even, you know, you look in Western music and uh, the bagpipes, there is one note uh, that plays the entire time. And, and it, no matter what chord you're, no matter what scale you're playing, there's mm -hmm. always going to be that droning note, no matter what. Um, you look at like Italian tarantellas and it's just the same and so you know it's this this sort of every culture has that that sort of repetitive drone and uh, it's very true in, in eastern music uh, and Sondheim tries to capture that in these songs he talks about in that video you sent me of uh, bowl, not bowler hat of uh, someone, someone in a tree, a tree. Yeah. yeah and he, he talks about how what he really struggled to do and what he what he worked at in this show was providing one small musical structure that he could expand on, but that was going to be the the centerpiece of each piece. And that that, you know, you see it in poems with a bum, bum, bottom, bum, 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 bottom, bum, bum. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's the entire song. And then they add he adds a couple of things here and there. Very simple. Um, but that's him, you know, trying to make it this Japanese style. Yeah. No, I know I, I enjoy it. It's my I think I'm also just sort of prejudiced because of that class, just like having to sit there for almost an hour while these two guys just kept on going through it and mm. through it and through it. And you know, it's one of those things where you you have something for too for too long, you start to grow resentful of it. Of course. Yeah, if you hear that if you hear that that repetitive sound, the the repetic musical structure for three or four minutes, it's one thing. If you're doing it for an hour, it's a little different for sure. <laughs> exactly. Something I'm very grateful that we never had to do in class over and over and over again, because I like this song. This is actually my favorite song in the whole score. It is Welcome to Kanagawa. Oh, okay. Yeah. Are you surprised that this is my favorite? No, I'm not. I'm not. Because it's, it's, a, it's a fun song. It's, it's kind of this, uh, the Madam character is, uh, she's, a, she's a Western musical theater character. Yeah. What we're learning is that I'm 
a basic piece of shit who doesn't <laughs> like any of this esoteric crap in Pacific Overtures. I just like the stuff that's super westernized. Yeah, you want the dick jokes from Kanagawa. Yeah, <laughs> I love the dick jokes. Well, so that's how, those dick jokes are actually kind of why Sondheim. Uh, he doesn't hate this song, but he's annoyed by this song because right. it's the whole pr- concept is this madam with these geishas who are coming to receive the American soldiers because that Kanagawa is where they're going to have the uh, treaty agreement in, in a specially built trade house. That's correct, right? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. They uh, Kayama's come up with this plan that they're going to lay down mats, so none of the, none of the Americans will touch soil, and they'll go into a raised treaty house and they'll destroy it all once they leave. And, and then they won't set foot on Japanese soil. Is the yes, 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 yes. And this madam in Kanagawa is using it as a business opportunity to entice the Americans. She goes, like, "Yo ho, Americans!" And the concept of the song, which gives it for me its comedic value is that because of the incoming americans all of her normal geishas have fled they don't want to be near so she's kind of had to scrape the bottom of the barrel of the women in the town and train them and they are not good at it they're first they're spanking brand new to it so they don't really know what they're doing but even if they had been more trained they probably still wouldn't be very good they just don't have the like um constitution to do it they're you know these young women who are just kind of thrown into this. And so there's a humor to that, which I really like. And the exasperation of the madam in that where Sondheim gets annoyed is there are these jokes where the, the geishas have fans with pornographic imagery on it, which is supposed to basically tell them about all these different kinds of sexual positions. And it's implied based off of when the madam's looking at the fans, telling them that one, you do this way that you do this one with a friend, this one, you get the money in advance, this one, you're going to have to scrub out afterwards. And like this one, this one's really good if you have a squash with you. And he says the jokes never really landed uh, in any theatrical production and he's not entirely sure why and he's rewritten them a bunch to make them uh, land better but I think they're really funny I always laugh when I watch them so I, th- I think they're funny I you know so so many times I find myself uh, like with with musical jokes I don't necessarily laugh out loud I think they're they're humorous and I just kind of like internalize the humor even in Sweeney Todd I think some of the best sexual jokes are in Sweeney Todd and my favorite one is uh uh hey hoy sailor boy wanted snugly harbored open the gate but dock it straight they see it lists to starboard is like so brilliant and so funny um I don't know that I've ever laughed out loud at it but it is fantastic I thought you were gonna say um it looks to me dear like you got plenty there to push Mm. Would you like to pr- push me parsley but you know same moment push me parsley oh yeah same same character you know same it's char- like how all of the all of the the sailor jokes, you know, it's that yeah. wit that, that attracted Sweeney to her in the first place. But we're talking about Pacific Overtures. Yeah, but I mean, I also love when they're talking about the Americans. Uh, the girls they say like, "I think I see one over there behind the trees." Um, I hear they're covered. Uh, I'm butchering the lyrics. Something like they're covered with hair, uh, just like fleas, except their knees. Maybe you can find it exactly. I just I think that there's in a show with not a ton of humor. This song is very welcome to me. Right. And you need it. You need you need some comic relief. Yeah, you 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 need to have a moment to exhale. And this show makes you work so hard to keep up with it that 
to have a moment where you can just sort of relax and not let necessarily let your brain go because it's not as if the story doesn't call for it that the lyrics are dumbed down it's just that the the lyrics this song is one of the few songs in the show where i feel like it actually does do the work for you so mm-hmm. it's not so much that you're allowing yourself to dumb down but you're just allowing yourself to relax for a second while something comes to you welcome to Kanagawa. music and food for 20 yen music and food and maybe then welcome welcome to Kanagawa. music and food and company music and food and you know you look at the musical theater history um look at look at hollywood history you look at mickey rooney in breakfast at tiffany's playing this mm-hmm. awful stereotype and awful. that's that's the history of of um people of color in hollywood up until a certain point and and i think that weidman is somebody who who is a historian who is culturally sensitive mm-hmm. who looks at at entertainment and says what are what are we doing to mm. people um and you know it's it's kind of the 70s you see a couple of white people coming out and saying this is not okay and i think that john weidman does it in these lyrics it's like marlon brando turning down the oscar for the godfather and instead having a native american go up and speak about uh indigenous americans and their problems yeah. in regards to hollywood um, someone using their cachet to shed light uh on issues where the people that it's happening to maybe don't have the same platform exactly yeah and in casting an all asian cast he creates a platform for people mm-hmm. they create a platform for people and they and they create job opportunities and those job opportunities become other opportunities become you know, you look at, at Mark Sires, who had this opportunity in Pacific Overtures because he's Asian American and he's incredibly talented. And then he goes on to, to be in these non-Asian shows. And that's something that, that is so important. And when you, when you miss out on that, and, and you know, it's, it's getting better now, but for the longest time, you know, the first time I did The King and I, we had a mostly white cast. It was uh, me and three other people were Asian American. Um, Asian. There were two of us were Asian American and two were from Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a real problem, and it's still a real problem in a lot of the country. And when people say like, "Oh well, we can't cast this Hollywood movie. We can't we can't cast this major movie with an Asian actor because there are no Asian stars." It's because Hollywood made no Asian stars. Yeah. They make they make stars. They make white stars all the time. They start them at childhood. They put them up on the Disney Channel. They give them albums. They, they make stars and they just don't do it with people of color. But, yeah. you know, you have to credit people before it was, I don't want to say trendy, but before it was widely accepted that that's not okay. You have to give credit to the people that are putting in the work to tell as authentic stories as they, as they know how with the, you know, heavy research that they've done and to do it and to use it to promote job opportunities, employment opportunities for people of color. Absolutely. I'm in full agreement with you there, Sam. Perfect. perfect. Yes, perfect. <laughs> so far, no conflict whatsoever. Uh, this has been a lovely interview uh, at this point. Maybe it'll take a turn at some point. Who's to say? I mean, who's, who's I, to say? 
I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, when you look at Hollywood and its representation of race, it it goes on way longer than it ever should have when you look right. at some of the stuff. I mean, um, the actor who plays the boy in the original production of Pacific Overtures, I forget his name, but he played Long Duck Dong in 16 Candles eight That's years later. Right. Um, yeah. uh, seven or eight years later. And it's... It's so disheartening to think this guy who's part of this musical where whatever issues you might have with it, the uh, intentions are so honorable and Mm -hmm. sadly, you know, so new up until that point where you get to tell this, you know, really impactful story. And then, but, and and in a platform where not a lot of people get to see you do it. You don't, not, not everyone in America saw Pacific Overtures. And then your big breakout where millions of people see you is this movie where you are this awful stereotype and the butt of jokes all the time it's like it's and that's it's it's just sort of um i don't even know how to describe it the like cruel fate sometimes of the entertainment industry which is doing better to correct itself i think still sometimes it doesn't understand what it means when people say representation or more stories they're like great so you know we did this movie where we have one of each and they're all a minor supporting role it's like no that's not just it. Same thing with um, right. gay actors and gay storylines. They say like, well, we don't have any gay movie stars that we can give financing for to do a Call Me By Your Name sequel. And like you said, like they don't make gay stars. Uh, mm-hmm. And as soon as an actor comes out as uh, gay or lesbian or queer or bi or, or you know transgender, they pigeonhole them and then they put them in in indie films because they think, well, you know, mainstream won't want it they, this won't sell overseas and they keep perpetuating the same story and they say well we don't have this it's like well you you haven't done the work to have this you can't right. expect me to buy that you don't have any of these plants in your garden when you don't even buy the seeds to fucking plant it right and then if they cast a gay actor he's, he's straight presenting and people don't know he's gay until after he's in it like neil patrick harris yep somebody who, it's like you have a you have a gay man who's married with kids, uh, who is sort of symbolic of of like, I mean he's he's not he's not your average gay American. He's a famous gay American, but like, you still you're like okay, well this guy is straight presenting. We're just gonna have him play straight characters. Hmm. So then you don't actually have you don't actually have the gay representation. You don't actually have Neil Patrick Harris playing a gay man in a gay relationship that or in a gay love story that that has goes through real life problems it's sort of people don't understand representation they just they yeah. it's exactly what you said they think yeah. well we can sort of you know we'll have we'll have a bunch of movies about slavery and that's all anybody wants to see right there's no mm-hmm. such thing as like no such thing as as black americans just living in the town that they live in just like you know going to the store working at their job like it's it's all of these movies have to be they take place in the 1860s uh, mm-hmm. They take place during the civil rights movement, and those those stories need to be told. But those there sh- those shouldn't be the only stories being told. Right. It's you know? well. It, I say this all the time uh, with queer culture. I'm, I mean, I, you and I run in similar circles, so I'm sure you've seen it on social media. Like anytime a queer story comes out in movies or theater, there's always some backlash of this isn't representative of my story, so therefore this is a bad work and. I've been saying it for so long that I feel like I am shouting into the void, but the answer isn't to make a story that appeals to everybody that's representative of everybody. No story ever will be that. 
And there's nothing wrong with having any specific kind of story necessarily, but not having any kind of variety, not having a consistency of, of more, uh, you know, it sucks to have an Emily in Paris in a sea of other TV shows that are so very similar. And right. yet like, you know, we have, it's a sin, which is one of a handful of, you know, queer storylines uh, in TV in the last couple of years. And it happens to deal with the AIDS uh, beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like, well, we get one a year and they seem to be about this or they seem to be about Stonewall or they seem to be about, you know, Love, Simon. I'm not like any other gay teen. I'm a gay teen that presents as straight. So you can trust me. Right. And again, nothing wrong with those stories, but those are the three that we keep getting. And I'm just like, we just need we just need more. It's a very simple answer. Just more. Right. Just more. And, just and more. it goes back to, I think we were saying this before we started recording, but it is, you know, the sort of like, I, I, I also think, the yes the answer is we need more stories definitely not we need fewer stories yeah and i think right now there's sort of a push to cancel some things especially in the asian american community i see i see some younger asian actors saying we need to cancel miss saigon we need to cancel the king and i and like i was saying you know 10 years ago i was in a production where the king of siam was white mm-hmm. um and a couple of years after that the dallas theater center tried to do it there was a petition that came out I jumped, I was on it. So many people jumped on this petition. They recast the role. And ever since then, you don't see all white productions of King and I, except for like high schools and community theaters. That's a whole other story. But yeah, the thing is, Asian people just got these jobs 10 years ago. They were written for us 70 years ago. We just got them 10 years ago. And like I was saying, you need to make these stars and these, these shows Pacific Overtures, Miss Saigon, The King and I, whether or not they are problematic in their ways, the answer isn't to burn them so that no one can ever see them again. The answer is to provide more stories, more mm-hmm. opportunities, more representation um, so that people can compare them and say, oh, well, this is probably more realistic than The King and I. This is probably more realistic than Miss Saigon. I think that some of these shows need to be taken, need to be looked at with a fine tooth comb. Miss Saigon could stand to have some rewrites done um, by an Asian playwright, you know, an Asian uh-huh. composer. You get people like my friend Yan Lee, who's brilliant. Um, you get Lauren Yi, who is this fantastic uh, playwright. I think she's, I think she's Chinese American. I think she's Chinese American. Um, she, she's this incredible playwright. You have these people. There are so many people that you can have just do these rewrites. I honestly don't think Pacific Overtures is one that needs to be taken through a, with, a, with a fine tooth comb. I think that it's, I think it stands alone. Um, Not in its intentions anyway. Uh, right. <laughs> there are moments where I mentally check out, but that has nothing to do with sure, the subject sure. matter. That simply right. has to do with the execution. Miss it's Saigon not is, insensitive. It's not insensitive. It's no, you it's know, not insensitive. Miss Saigon is such a weird animal where it's, it, I find that Miss Saigon and its original intentions is also not insensitive, but it's just such a very hot subject matter that really like there's no, it's almost like there was just no way out of that without without striking a really bad chord. Does that make sense? Yes. And with Miss Saigon too, what I'll say about Miss Saigon is it, it seems to me like a musical about the Vietnam War told about Americans and Vietnamese by a couple of French guys who do not acknowledge the fact that the French colonized Vietnam in the first place and, and fucked it up to the point where it was in civil war. 
Mm. Right. So that's they don't acknowledge that. And it shows. Um, well, and it's also <laughs> and it's inspired and it's based off of an opera that whereas, you know, I think Miss Saigon had somewhat noble intentions. I, I don't think Madame Butterfly has any noble intentions. Beautiful right. as the music is, Madame Butterfly, in terms of uh, representation and gender dynamics, is, for lack of a better term, a piece of shit. I think it's right. really, really problematic. Uh, and that's I don't like to use that word often because people, I think, apply it to works that are trying to find more nuance in these things. And they go, well, it's problematic. And I go, you have to look at what the characters are doing and compare it to what the piece is stating. Like uh, in Pacific Overtures, what is the piece stating? What are the characters doing? They're not always the same thing. Madam Butterfly, that piece is like, oh. Yeah, the... it's racist. It's... Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think Miss Saigon tried to take a racist thing and had this really interesting concept of modernizing it to the Vietnam War while not really reflecting on the fact that the origin of the work, it's coming from was so racist and thus like well they had all these noble intentions like you just can't escape from that there's no way in my opinion i just say writing have new artists write a new musical keep missing on sort of there while we come up with some other things so we can look back on it and go like right. what did they do well and where did they falter and what was and was that even their prop uh was that their fault or was that the problem of the origins of the material and right. and find new ways yeah and then eventually when there are better stories then it goes the way of carmen jones it goes you know these these shows just don't get produced anymore yeah because there are better stories to tell yeah um 100 uh well carmen that's a perfect example of carmen jones because carmen jones uh with oscar hammerstein you know modernizing an opera that already has kind of issues and doing the best that it can and being a really great staple for the moment and then artists taking it and doing it better over the years. It took right. them a little longer than they should have, but we've eventually gone to a point, at least with um, with uh, Black artists, where we are, we've had enough works now where, as you said, Carmen Jones can kind of be put on the side and compared and contrasted in that way. We have other stories that can now, that we can start working on that as well. Right. Um, but yeah. And I think, I think too, the Black community's credit, I think a lot of that, most of that is due to the fight that black theater artists have have made over the last several decades saying we need yeah. better representation we need better opportunities i think the other communities of color are starting to do it now they've yeah. been doing it for the last couple of decades more so um but you know and i, I think we owe a lot of that to the black theater community oh 100 uh, for, oh. for providing the model for how we get better representation and so now it's like we need to have latinx people in in evita and West Side Story, and if we don't, you're going to hear about it. Uh, right. We need to have Asian people in The King and I. If you don't, you're going to hear about it. Yes, I'm not uh, thanking Arthur Lawrence for representation of Black stories. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> even though he did write one in the '60s, but no, and 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 this is not to say that it's great now. It's better. Uh, and better is not a word to get complacent with. It's not a word to be uh, hardened by. It's just, it's it's motivation to keep going. Like the fight's not over and truly will never be over for anyone. It's just about, you know, always trying to continue to make it better. Um, Evita is, an, is, an, is a very specific bird in my eyes when it comes to Latinx stories, only in the sense that Argentina is a very specific country Right. When it comes to Latin representation in terms of skin tone. And I've gone on about it on this podcast before, 
and it opens up a whole Pandora's box of um, images that white audiences that are trying to be more um, forward thinking than plaster onto um, Hispanic artists that is not fair to Hispanic artists right. uh, in terms of like, you don't look how we imagine a Hispanic character to look. And there's a story with Jerome Robbins where he took Maria's hair and dyed it black because she didn't look Puerto Rican enough, even though uh, Josie was Guzman was Puerto Rican. Right. <laughs> um, it's th- things like that where I'm like, it's, and I, and I cannot stress enough, this is specifically Evita that I have right. this thing. Like there are so many other things. I'm like, absolutely. Like it's, it's not even about Hispanic or non-Hispanic. Just when people say Hispanic with Evita, they mean like tan and black hair. Right, exactly. And, and yeah, that's problematic in its own, in its own way. Be, but I, you know, when I, I think personally, when I, when I argue for, for you know, representation and, and employment opportunities, I specifically talk about demographically representative employment numbers mm-hmm. in the way that like in medicine and in education, any other field, you couldn't say, oh, we didn't have any jobs for black guys this year. We didn't have any jobs for Asian women this year, but somehow theaters are able to do it. You know, you, you do mm-hmm. Oklahoma, you do 42nd street, you have a season with guys and dolls in it and you say, oh, you know what? We actually, we just didn't have any jobs for black people. We didn't have any jobs for, for X, this, you know, X community because uh, the shows just don't allow for it. But the problem with that is that what you end up doing there is making a socioeconomic microcosm of the, the system of opportunity that was available at the time. If you're going to cast an all-white production of Guys and Dolls, in essence, what you're doing is you are utilizing the employment opportunities that were available in the 1950s for Black people, for Asian people, for Latino people. And that's just not conscionable in 2021. But the other, and the other thing is when I'm talking about demographically employment, uh, demographically representative employment numbers, I do not argue in favor of ethnic purity. And I, and I think that that is, when people start to go down that rabbit hole, it is a very dangerous thing. I don't think that ethnic purity has ever been a good concept for people of color. I would argue that it has never been a good concept in the world's history. Hmm. But some people would say, you know, some people go down like the, oh, if you're gonna do West Side Story, you need to have only Puerto Rican people play the Puerto Rican people. I don't think so because America for the most part doesn't look, they don't look at me and say, oh, he's Thai. They look at me and say, he's Asian. Mm-hmm. And so as long as, as long as we're put into categories, we need to stand in solidarity in our categories. And if we were to do, if we were to do this, Eth- with ethnic purity in mind. I, I hate saying it. I hate saying it ethnic sounds purity. It sounds so, so weird. Nazi-ist, yes. you know? <laughs> um, but, and that's, that's why I use it too, because it sounds so awful. Yeah. It feels awful. But to do it with ethnic purity in mind, there are a handful of people that could do The King and I, and I am half of, the, of one, you know? Um, at least in terms of, of American musical theater actors. Yeah. Um, there, aren't, there aren't enough... Uh, Thai musical theater actors in New York City to mount a 30-person production of The King and I. There just aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to have our Filipino brothers and sisters, our Japanese brothers and sisters in the shows with us. And and I would not pass up the opportunity for the cultural exchange, for the, for the racial solidarity that I've gained in productions where I've shared the stage with Japanese and Japanese Americans, with Filipinos and Filipino Americans. Yeah, so I'll never, I'll never argue for, for ethnic purity. But I think when it comes to Evita, for me, it's less about we need to make it look 
the way that Argentina looks, it's less about that than, than it is, this is a show that takes place in Latin America compared to all of the other shows that take place in the West, uh, in, in, in North America and in Europe that don't provide the opportunities for Latinx performers. And if this is your opportunity for Latinx performers for, to give 20 people jobs uh, in an industry that still casts white performers in these roles, um, you, need to, you need to use that to provide these opportunities to help provide the credits, to help provide the financial infrastructure for these people to continue to succeed in the future. 100%. Sam, there's not a word you just said that I don't agree with. And in fact, had said in earlier episodes, you literally said so much that I've already said. And I, Evita, it's because I'm just that, I'm that faggot. Who's like, when it, because Evita is just such a specific thing with Argentina. I am not saying cast oh, no, no, no. back from Connecticut, but no, I, I'm no, I'm hundred percent agree with, with you. Cause what it really comes down to is the job opportunities of an industry that has always been uneven and like every industry around and allowing the opportunities to be given to people who, where they've just been pigeonholed for so long and saying, I'm not saying, well, a lot of Argentina was historically Caucasian, therefore it's okay to cast a bunch of Caucasian people. I'm I am personally, when it comes to something like Avita, which I already don't think is very representative of Argentina as it's written, um, I'm like, cast literally the most anybody in the world like his like hispanic especially because it is a story that's that is already being allowed to be given to them and i don't want to take away opportunities but it's that is where you talk it's for me evita the discussion of casting of that goes back into what you're talking about racial purity when you talk about um thai actors with king and i puerto rican actors with west side story where each demographic kind of First of all, I also want to say fuck you for throwing a big word like microcosm into this conversation, acting, <laughs> acting like I know what goddamn microcosm is. You, I couldn't say the word ceremony an hour ago. You think I'm going to be able to come up with goddamn microcosm? God, you straight man. Um, but, Sorry. What you go to college? That, that's or more something? of a nerd. That's a more of a nerd word than a straight man word. You know? No, it's just you went to college. Um, so, for me, it's like. I don't know if you if you I'm sure if you've experienced this. I know I've experienced this as a as a gay man. Every demographic sort of has this for some reason in place hierarchy of like of for lack of a better term purity of like you are a this you are a this you are a this and so in the gay community, you know, masculine acting white muscular men are for some reason at the top top of the of the mountain and it goes down mm -hmm. you know based off of then age and body size and skin color and how much body hair you have or don't have and then and then once you get past all of those hurdles then it becomes you know the pop culture that you know oh you can't quote all of mommy dearest oh you don't watch drag race oh you don't know who judy garland is oh you don't have tiktok like oh you, you don't have more than ten thousand instagram followers it's like all these things that we put into place where it becomes, yes, I might be less than in the grand scheme of the world, but I'm better than in the uh, small circle that I have been pigeonholed into. I've been saying pigeonholed a lot and I don't like that I've been saying it, but it's just because- No, I mean, it's, it's true. It's the real thing, yeah. And I just, I'm running on two cups of coffee. At, this is my second video of the day. I'm knee deep in Sondheim. The amount of words I can come up with, like microcosm, are limited. <laughs>
I got a good night's sleep last night for the first well, time in a while. So. Fuck you. <laughs> I tried to go to bed early and then I had stomach cramps for like an hour and I finally went to bed an hour and a half after I tried to go to bed. So <sighs> the world is your oyster and I'm simply <laughs> sitting in it. I hope you're pleased with yourself, Sam yeah. Seamock. Um, no, I, I, I'm 100% in agreement with you. The Avita thing is one of those things where it's like, it's, it, it's such a specific example where when people talk about it, I think you're absolutely right on when it comes to it, the bottom line is just opportunities, giving the opportunities to the actors who have been denied so many other times because they just get kept being told, well, we don't have the show for you. This isn't the season for you. And then you have something like Avita, which supposedly has these opportunities. And then you hear, well, historically speaking, Ava Perone is white. So we cast a white actress from California. And it's like, well, go fuck yourself. But on the other end of that spectrum, you have people who, if you have, if you do cast a Hispanic actress who is Caucasian representing or Caucasian presenting, I should say, not representing, but presenting. And then someone go, well, she's not Hispanic enough. Then it, you open this whole other door of like, well, what the fuck does that mean? You right. Know? And that's something, you know, multiracial people, it's something we deal with every day. Um, mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm half Thai, I'm half white. Um, I try to, I'm, tr I'm actually trying to, to deviate from that, from that terminology, this sort of, I'm half this, I'm half, I'm both Thai and white. And full-blown um, sexy, so own that. Oh, thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. Th that's, that's um, honestly, that's but, what I put down as my ethnicity. I put down sexy. sexy. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think everybody should. We're all sexy. What? But you know, yeah. when when I was starting out in this industry, you know, it was it was people didn't know where to place me. And I, I would go out for Miss Saigon and I would get typed out. And if anybody's listening and doesn't know what typing out is, you I don't know how you've made it this far in the podcast, but um <laughs> it's um the system of in an audition when they look at you, they line you up or they line up your headshots and they say, um, this person doesn't look like they would fit into this show. And so I've been typed out of a ton of productions. Um Miss Saigon or the King and I because I'm I because I'm too white. I've been typed out of a lot of other shows because I'm too Asian. And that luckily is not the case now. But I, you know, I do have to thank the Asian shows on my resume. The the people who cast me in the King and I people who cast me in Miss Saigon, um, because that has afforded me the opportunities to get in the room with other people. And that's that, you know, if I had never done the King and I with Bart Shear, I would not have been playing Freddie in My Fair Lady directed by Bart Shear. You know, it's, it's, and that's what I'm saying about these employment opportunities is that. Um, well, and Mark you know. Sires in, in the original Pacific Overtures as we. Exactly. Mentioned. Yeah. Mark it's, Sires. It's, exactly. It's exactly that, um, which I'm, I, there's no argument against that. It's just, it's, right. it just, I think because it's such a, it feels sometimes like such a crude term to say that it's about like just having a job and like getting the job. And we sometimes uh, say, terms that are a little loftier and seem a little more all-encompassing and important in terms of the grand scheme of the world. But I think sometimes something as simple as just, it's about a job opportunity and what that can lead to, that's right. important enough. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the, uh, it's not the building, but the beam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Wait, are we, are we on, are we, are we on someone in a tree now? We're, we've been yeah. on everything. Oh, um, we have been on everything. I love someone in a tree. It's the song that Sondheim himself loves the most. I, yeah. this song, it's taken me a long time to love it as much as I do, which isn't to say that I didn't like it beforehand, but it's a song where I always was like, yes, this is well-structured. I like it. It's nice. Each time I listen to it, it gives me more. Um, I don't know. Just, it gives me more each time I, I listen to it. And right, I yeah. think especially in a show like Pacific Overtures, where they worked so hard to make it about these grand themes what makes the song 
pop so much is that this one is actually really about people and how right. in, this, in this grand moment, it's not even about the moment itself, but the people who are around to witness it, to experience it, uh, that it affects, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's how I see it too. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting looking at this and I, I see shades of the room where it happens in it, you know, where, yeah. where all this, this political stuff, these negotiations are going on. Political negotiations are super boring. With the, oh, yeah. the the interesting thing about political negotiations are, is how they affect people, and and you know Aaron Burr is standing outside this this negotiation, wondering what's going on, wanting yeah. to be in there. It's the mystery um, about it. It's the mystery about it. And and with these, you know, someone in a tree, it's this soldier underneath who can only hear everything. It's a little boy on top who can see everything, but doesn't really know what's going on. It's it's yeah. the difference, you know, the difference between seeing something and hearing something. The difference between uh, seeing something when you're very young and trying to remember it when you're very old mm -hmm. and uh, the game of telephone that that history is like history is is just a game of telephone mm -hmm. of, of things getting passed on there's no way that the history lessons that were taught anywhere are 100% accurate because it's just a bunch of people sitting around a bunch of scholars sitting around saying oh well what happened here what happened here and filling in the gaps yeah um and that's what someone in a tree is. And what I love about also someone in a tree is these people who were there, but we can't necessarily take everything they say as fact because memory is fickle. We remember right. how we want to remember things or like we remember the main crux of a, of a moment and then everything else are details that kind of get mishmashed to uh, fit the crux of the moment. Um, right. So like, for example, when the old man is singing about being in the tree when he was 10 and he sings, you know, uh, some of them had gold on their coats and the little boy says one of them has gold. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he was like, forgive him. He uh, he was younger then. You know, it's been a minute. And then when the boy says one of them is old, the guy's probably like maybe 25. But right. he's, and, and the old man says, forgive him. He was only 10 uh, to him. 25 is really, really old. Yeah, it's very smart. Oh, very smart. And forgive me for the small tangent. I brought it up once, but did you see FX's uh, Fosse Verdon with Michelle Williams and Sam Rockwell? I've seen some of it. I didn't see the whole series. The whole, it's the whole not, thing. I I don't love it. It's not great. Uh, it has its moments. Michelle Williams is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, in it. she's she excellent. Does, yes. But what bothered me the most, not even about the show itself, but defenders of the show is people would say about, there, there, there are a ton of historical inaccuracies in it. Um, and they and what makes it worse is that it's all to the effect of making Bob Fosse look worse as a human being. How bad he was as a human being, I don't know. I wasn't alive when he was alive. Uh, but I I read different accounts and it all varies. But the response from everyone is, well, Nicole Fosse, his daughter, was like the person that they spoke to. And she was there and everything that you know, is in the show is what she approved of. And I was like, she's the only person they spoke to. There are hundreds of people they could have spoken to as well. They didn't talk to Cheetah Rivera or Anne Ranking or Ben Vereen or all these other people only because like one person's account of all of these events is not enough. Especially his daughter. She wasn't in the room with him for all of these things. And her and her opinion of him is slanted based off of how she felt in those moments. She right. and what her mother has told her since then. It's there are so many accounts. And someone in a tree is you have these two separate accounts of something that even in the song, like there's sometimes a little contrasting. And it's a matter of like, 
what is actually true is sort of a middle ground between these people. No one is 100% accurate because uh, we remember things, as I said before, we remember things from how we, from the viewpoint of how we got there, where we were at mm -hmm. in that moment. Which so is another another Japanese story, uh, Rashomon. It's yes. Old, it's very Rashomon, the sort of like, oh, well, the same event, uh, but told through different perspectives and how they conflict and yeah. what actually what actually happened. Yeah. What I love about Rashomon, and it actually comes back to someone in the tree when you're talking about how like political events are actually rather boring. Uh, when you find the final version of Rashomon of what happened ends up being from a spectator who's like, I was in the distance and I watched the whole thing. And not to say that his this person's version uh, is the most accurate, but it probably is because he had no emotional connection to anything tied to it. He was very much just a spectator. His version of the events, it's like, it's actually a much more boring account than any of the other versions. Um, like the, the two guys fight and it's really messy and like all of it is just sort of very human. And, and while like the final event is the most is still like rather dramatic it's not the most dramatic telling of the story and that always is sort of the case we tend to embellish as we get older because we want to have these moments feel like these important uh tellings to everyone you know right. especially in someone in a tree where the whole like justification is without me this thing never really existed because i'm here to tell you and without me to tell you there's no story to tell We've talked about most of the things. I don't want to talk about Pretty Lady. You know, so I do want to talk about Pretty Lady because do I, you? because what I think about Pretty Lady, I I think, you know, and I was just I was rewatching the thing just the other day, the 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 Broadway, the original Broadway company. Yeah, and the song is so creepy. It's so creepy. Um, the 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 musical structure of it, the sort of like, you know, the it's just like the sliding strings. It's like, it's this sort of like falling lotus flower in the air, you know, like um, it's about the exoticization and the, and the fetishization of Asian women is what mm. I see when I see it. And I watch this and I get so mad, not at the show, not at the song. Um, but at the attitude of the characters in the song. At, at the attitude of the characters that, that they, they, these sailors, they see this Japanese, this young, beautiful Japanese woman um, and they mistake her for a geisha, you know, for a prostitute, mm -hmm. and that's pretty insulting. And that's uh, why the, that's why your yeah. samurai father, like they 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 uh, intrude on their property. They climb over yeah. the wall and go into her garden, and they make no effort to understand her. They just want to fuck her. Yep. And, and they have is... no basis for her being a geisha other than the fact that she's an Asian woman alone in a garden. That's right. all it is. Yeah. Exactly. It's immediately assume. And that's that's what the song is about for me is is these these guys like these Westerners fetishizing Asians, which still takes place today. And you know, like I'll talk to guys once in a while, just like you know, some I'll meet some some broy dude, and he'll he'll be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm really attracted to Asian women. And it's like, yeah, bro, that is not that is not original whatsoever. That is a result of cultural upbringing 
that tells you that that Asian women are exotic, they shit like everybody else. You know, mm-hmm. like it's so. So yeah, I, I, that's what I want to say about pretty lady. I, you, you don't know, have I can... to tell me about men <laughs> about men fetishizing Asian women. I am Jewish, Sam. I grew up in a sea of schlubby men who would watch. Tomorrow Never Dies and be thrilled that James Bond had an Asian girlfriend at the end. They're like, ah, oh, what a lucky dude. I'm like, you're not, like, not only are you not special with that thought, you're very gross with that thought. Cause yeah. it's not even like, oh, he found himself like this really awesome human being who has thoughts and agency and she's complex and she can challenge him. It's just that she's Asian. And I'm like, what right. the fuck is up with you? Right. Like, which is, called- which, and you know, that's sort of like the, the Western. It's that's what Hollywood did to the Asian person. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it made them, it made it. Um, and Bruce Lee tried to fight it, you know, bless his soul. Like he, uh, he came in and he came into America and he, he was like, you know, I'm going to show them that Asians can be masculine and mm-hmm. they can be fighters. They can be hardcore. The guy was super hardcore. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how well he succeeded at doing that, you know, cause it was all Kung Fu movies, but, um, you know, Hollywood, it told, Hollywood told Americans that Asian men are feminine and Asian women are docile, obedient sex objects. Yes. And like, also like mysterious, if that makes sense. Yes. Like yeah, every, sure. And it's not even just Asian women, but all women who aren't white, women in general in Hollywood are not given great treatment, but especially uh, non-Caucasian women, each one right. has like a specific like adjective, like fiery Latina, tough uh, black woman, and then like mysterious uh, docile mm-hmm. Asian woman. It's these very basic terms that are just, they're demeaning because they're the main identifier and nothing right. else. And usually it's stuff that, and it's usually used in a, in a, uh, I, if it's in a negative light, it's about like, oh, well, you're too tough to approach. Or if it's quote unquote a positive light, it's basically positive in terms of like, oh, well, I can approach you. And as a man, your value as a woman is whether I'm willing to approach you or not. So you should be pleased that I find you approachable, even if all the other adjectives I just gave you are super demeaning. Right. And they, they, they cut down the, on the dimension of the human character that like if, if all Asian women are docile if all black women are angry, if all Latina women are, are fiery, it just, it, it gets rid of all of the colors of humanity and not, not the physical colors, like the, the, the internal, the, the psychological no, the fa- the colors. The facets of our, of right. our being. That, to be that, yeah, fair, Sam, I mean, to be fair, so much of humanity is super basic. Me oh yeah, oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're all we're all basic, you know. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, we all say we hate Taylor Swift, and then we listen to her new album the moment it comes out. Like, oh, listen, <laughs> I mean, have you seen her Tiny Desk concert? No. Oh, she she earned she earned some respect for me for that Tiny Desk. It's just like her a piano and a guitar. It's lovely. I She's really talented. I like her. I like her to yeah. write a musical. <laughs> I think she should write a musical. <laughs> no, I, I think the only reason why I wasn't, I don't have like a lot of opinions on Pretty Lady. I wasn't even thinking about it on like a conceptual level. Just I listened to it and it's it's very, I don't know. I don't want to say pleasant because you're right. Like there is an unease about it, mm. but I don't get the same. I think because of uh, 
how I came to this musical and who I am in the life that I've led. I don't think I didn't like really think about that when listening to it. So that's, I would like to listen to the song again with that in mind. Mm. But like when I listen to Bowler Hat, I, again, I'm thinking more on like a musical theater, like structural level of what this song does storytelling wise. Right. And I think because Pretty Lady is much more of a conceptual song than it is a storytelling song. Like nothing really happens at the beginning or the end of it. Uh, all right. the action happens after it. Uh, right. Exactly. The, the murder of these, of these sailors. I mean, rightfully so. Burn it to the ground, I say. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, you know, I mean, they they walked into a samurai's garden. Like, what do they expect? Yeah. Um, Listen, Jack and Into the Woods deserves to be fed to the giant after the shit he's pulled. That's true. Hey, it's totally valid. Yeah. I don't care if he's played by a 25-year-old actor or a 10-year-old. Either one, I say, throw that kid to the fucking giant. Um, I do want to talk about Bowler Hat because it's really the only song we haven't covered yet. Oh, yeah. And Um, it's the thesis of the show. Very much so. And is and accomplishes in about four minutes what it honestly took the first hour and a half of the show to even approach, which is we see the Westernization of Japan over the course of 15 years through one character, Kayama, uh, in contrast to uh, his friend who is holding on to the strict traditions of the uh, feudal Japan, which Mm. at the beginning of the show, you never would have thought would have happened. Yeah. Which is yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. So well done. And the staging, I think it's such a brilliant, simple staging. Mm-hmm. Um, to have them both juxtaposed on the same stage, on opposite ends of the stage, where uh, you know, Kayama, so Manjaro is on one side doing this this one tea ceremony. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the sake of the story, he's he's only doing one thing. And mm-hmm. it and it's that's that's his progression through the entire song. And it's a very traditional thing. And meanwhile, Kayama's on the other side of the stage, just going through these rapid changes and, and the props, the scenery around him is changing. And the juxtaposition of the two only serves to highlight that even, even more, more uh, specifically. Like you see the desk change, you see the lighting change, you see the costuming change. Um, I think it's just a brilliant, it's a brilliant piece. Absolutely. Um, and sort of, gives you all you need to know about the the contrasting styles because I mean kabuki theater can go on for eight hours in in very old school traditions of Japan it's really about simplicity taking your time less is more and making the most of each moment and mm. so it's 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 is fascinating to see that contrast of the two where one is all these in the course of the entire song is just doing the tea ceremony. And then the other one is going through every possible change you could make going from sitting right. on the floor to sitting at a desk, to having a monocle to um, spectacles. And, yeah. yeah. The, I don't know if Sondheim actually meant this, but I do chuckle at the end when he's given um, uh, the, the jacket, yeah, the the jacket cutaway. which is called the cutaway. But when he ends and he says, it's called a cutaway. I think of like the film term where you like, cut away and go into the next scene. I don't know if he actually meant that. He probably did because he thinks of things. Entendre. About, yeah, yeah, double entendre is multiple <laughs> levels. But it's because like, it's the end of the song and they do cut right. away to the next scene. So I'm going to go put on a cutaway. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go put on a cutaway. Let's cut away to the next scene. And I'm like, yeah. Jesus Christ. I just find that funny in a meta way. We serve white wine. The house is far too small. I killed a spider on the wall. But none of the servants thought it was a lucky sign. I read Spinoza every day. For me, Dable. Where is my bowler hat? 
I think it's, I think it is a real undertaking. I think it's, I believe that it's Sondheim's most ambitious show. Oh, um, 100% it's his most ambitious. It's so ambitious. Way more ambitious than let's make a horror musical or let's make a musical in reverse. You know, like it's very much, uh, it, they pushed boundaries and, uh, and they have a really interesting, unique musical to show for it. Yeah. I think for me, especially when we were watching the original, because it was so stylized and I felt that Prince was approaching it in such an intellectual level, I do I think it's wrong to look at the show as an idea because it is and it's and it's a approach that only Prince has ever really had when directing the show. Any any future directors, many of whom um, have been Asian have approached the show from a human perspective because these are real human beings that are affected by all this and people have been affected by it since then. And there's a distance with the way that Prince sort of approached the original production and it's visually beautiful. It's got all this splendor. The, this, the design of the show is gorgeous, but I just didn't feel much watching it. I really felt a lot more watching the new national theater of Tokyo's uh, Someone in a Tree because the performances were so um, relatable. I was, I, was, I was like, oh yes, that's right. These characters are human beings, not just concepts. And I would like to see a production of Pacific Overtures where that approach is uh, kept throughout. I didn't, I didn't see the John Doyle production, I, did you? No, I was, I was actually gone. I was, I was out on tour with the King and I, mm. and I was not in town when it, when it performed. So I didn't get to see any of it. I was, I'm so bummed because I actually, you know, I'm an Asian American musical theater actor mm. in 2021. I, I know basically the whole cast, some, some better than others, but mm. like I, I've worked with so many of these people like Stephen Ang who played Kayama has directed me in a show. I've, I've done, done some readings with, with Anne Harada. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know George Takei personally, but you know, I know plenty of people who know him through Allegiance. Like I would have, I'll, I I'll give you his number. Them. I'll give, you his no- I'll give you George's number. Oh yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. Well, as, as a gay, we all know each other. Right. Um, GT. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I know that John Doyle cut a lot of stuff as he's wont to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he cut Chrysanthemum tea, which, which was is very- so sad. Yeah. I get, I understand why he did it because it was more about really driving uh, the plot as full forward as as he possibly could, right? And Chris, and especially with it not being historically accurate, I can see yeah. why you'd be like, "Yeah, let's just cut it out. It yeah. doesn't serve any purpose." But it is a good song, and if you're cat, and if you're doing a production where you are having the women, if you are having the women, if you're having women play the women roles, like it's just another opportunity in a show that's exactly. very male dominated. Yeah, uh, you know, and it's weird that Pacific Overture is coming right off of a little night music and. Uh, Follies, which are very female dominated, have these amazing roles for women. And then Pacific Overtures, which the original Broadway production, to keep it in the style of Kabuki, none of the women play women roles. They right. are which deprives all these deprives all the Asian American women yeah. uh, that were in New York at the time, those opportunities. Yeah, they're you they're used um there's a specific term for it where uh, dressed in black and sort of, you know, they are for lack of a better term, like like stagehands crew and then they get to come out in the finale to sort of uh embody the progress of japan right but yeah i I think i don't think that you lose anything by having women play those roles because the show's not necessarily written to be a kabuki show it's just it, it that's just the approach that prince brought to it 
when right. he when he staged it. And again, in in the time when men were playing all these female roles, like in Japanese theater, in Western theater, in in, in Shakespeare's Globe, you know, um, again, in if you cast it authentically mm-hmm. um, to suit the time period, you're, what you're going to end up doing is uh, creating a dearth of of employment opportunities for people who need them. Yeah, you know, it's it's that. Uh, Yes, women were super oppressed during the time of Shakespeare in Japan, uh, you know, in the 18, in the 1850s, 1860s, when Kabuki theater started to come out. And like, we don't want to continue oppressing people. Yeah. Just to be historically accurate, because historic historical accuracy uh, leads to oppression in the end. Well, I think it's similar to what we were saying before. When we, once we have been able to balance it out a bit more we can afford to have those productions where it's you know having a production of pacific overtures that is full on kabuki historically accurate what when there's a bigger balance of uh asian actresses having many more opportunities right and, we're not, and we don't have to think so much of like oh is this taking jobs away we can think oh what an interesting approach now back to all the other things exactly that we all get to do and yeah. we're not and we're not nearly there yet which is why we are saying this um, right we are just starting to wade into a very deep ocean yes it's again better does not mean finished but it also doesn't mean terrible it just means it's better um and it's a motivation to keep going so let's go into some reviews and then a final we have we've been talking about it already for throughout this entire episode so we don't have to go on for too long but like the legacy of this show which is um uh long and complicated but also short and simple one might say yeah underappreciated it's an underappreciated show for sure is it though? I I like it. I, I <laughs> really like a, Pacific Overtures. I'm, be, I'm being I'm being a dick. I'm being an antagonistic dick. I'm just I'm making sure you really <laughs> stick to your opinions here, Sam. Uh, I appreciate that. You know? Yes, a couple of reviews of the original production. Again, they talk about like, oh, we were just trash. The reviews are really cold. The reviews are interesting. Um, Clive Barnes in the Times, who prints claims like, oh, he closed the show. He calls it beguiling and sometimes bewildering but very serious uh, and almost inordinately ambitious. Uh, he calls Sondheim the most remarkable man in the Broadway musical today, and he shows it why in Pacific Overtures. While it sometimes sinks and often floats, it does try to soar, and because of its lofty ambitions, it should be uh, appreciated, which I was like, for, he goes, it's very, very different. I'm like, if you consider that a nasty review, I'll take that as a negative review. That is, right. that is not the worst review I've ever read. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Martin Gottfried in the Post called it a remarkable work of art, quite an accomplishment. Walter Kerr, who really just never liked Sondheim, just never understood him. He said, uh, while Sondheim and Prince's restlessness as artists are their greatest virtue, it is uh, there's a mishap that has occurred here. Um, he doesn't know what they have in mind. The audience is emotionally baffled. And then he says, on top of all this, why tell a Japanese story their way when the Japanese can do it so much better. Uh, and I think the answer to that is we aren't allowing Japanese artists to tell their stories. That's that's yes. the simple answer. Yes. And now we're finally getting to that point. Finally. Finally. Yes. The one thing about the original production of Pacific Overtures that I, surprises me that they didn't think about, and I think just it's because Boris Aronson was such a close collaborator of Hal Prince, and his set design is gorgeous. There Excellent. was a prominent scenic designer who... Uh, was Asian, Ming Cho Lee. I think he uh, was from China, but he 
he was a prominent scenic designer at the time. And it was surprised me that they didn't like, I don't know, like at least make an effort to try to diversify the creative team in some way when this guy had just like broken down to the scene three years earlier as this like major scenic designer. Hmm. Hal Prince was like, no, Boris, my Russian Boris, he will do the job just nicely. And he did the do East, a right? Hmm? They're, they're the East. Yeah, they're over there somewhere. Russia's mostly Asian. Yeah, listen, kings are burning somewhere. Uh, <laughs> do you know... Uh, so okay, this musical was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, including musical and score. It won two. Can you guess what the two were? Uh, none of the none of the really big ones. I I don't. I did, I did, it won best scenic design, right? 100%. Okay. And Mako didn't win for best actor, right? He was nominated. No. He was nominated. And then uh, Kayama was nominated as well for supporting, but he lost. Okay. This was the year of Chicago and uh, a chorus line. Oh, okay. So yeah. it wouldn't be it definitely wouldn't be choreography. No. Um, it wasn't best score, was it? No, chorus line really swept this year. So Sondheim yeah. was nominated. It was Pacific Overtures, a chorus line, uh, Chicago, and then I think it's yeah, Trima Nisha, which is a Scott Joplin opera that was basically in hiding for decades and then like came to prominence in the seventies. And then I guess through some default was able to be nominated for score crazy times. And then oh. best, the fourth best musical nominee was a show called bubbling Brown sugar, which is a review about uh, Harlem essentially from the twenties through the forties. So, I mean, for 1976 to have Pacific overtures and bubbling Brown sugar uh, as two of your best musical nominees out of four is it's pretty solid uh, in terms of just like, diverse storytelling wow and then we regressed a bit for the 2000s and now we're back well we regressed in the 80s let's be perfectly yeah, honest yeah yeah 30 all, years some, yeah for the, for all the shows period. that i love about the for all the all the things i love about the 80s all the shows all the movies there is a lot of ways in which you're like you know what let's take four steps back yeah pendulum swing you know exactly yeah no the second tony at one was a uh, costume design by florence klotz uh-huh yeah 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 that makes sense yeah very design heavy show uh Pacific Overtures wasn't really seen in New York again until 1984. There was an off-Broadway production, which was very similar to the original, but much more stripped down. It was a you know small-scale version of the original and actually got better reviews because I think it, was, it wasn't it was so um, intellectualized as Hal Prince had done it and was, again, it was sort of the first production to really look at it as human beings. And critics were like, oh, I liked this a lot more the second time. I wonder what that is. And I feel like that kind of just keeps happening with each production as more directors try to dig into the humanity of the piece. Uh, right. Critics get more receptive to it. Yeah. And I think honestly, you know, for the the ambition of, of trying to make it, like basing it on Kabuki theater and, and these Japanese traditional theater styles, mm -hmm. I think the drawback of that and the, the danger of that is that uh, less intelligent people will watch that and say, oh, Asian people are really weird at acting. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna look at that stylized production, if it's the only story, if it's mm -hmm. the only story since The King and I were or Flower Drum Song and until Miss Saigon, because it mm -hmm. is. Um, well, no, there was Shogun. There was a musical Shogun called Shogun. Shogun was in the 90s. It was in the 90s, right, so yeah. Yeah, so it's every every decade uh, yeah, or two. Yeah, we're basically King and I flowered <laughs> King and I flower drum song, and then fifties, and, and then Pacific and then Pacific Overtures. Yeah, but you know, if it, if it's been twenty years since another show, and this is the first time you see twenty Asian people on stage, the danger is that uh, 
people will watch that and think that that is a show that, that that's what shows starring Asian Americans are going to be like. Yeah. And then it might keep you from doing another show with an, another Asian show for 10, 15 years. Yeah. And then when you do that, all the female Asian actresses are on a bar in bikinis, in bikinis yeah. slapping their butts around. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like a weird pinball machine where it's like we artists, no, I would say white artists with like noble intentions keep trying to like, Get, trying to hit the ball like in the exact right way and it just keeps going sideways like side to side it's like no you're not you're not quite understanding what we're talking about here like right. like when we tried it this different way it's like you're still not quite grasping it yeah and i think so much especially broadway and hollywood as much as theater and film are art forms broadway and hollywood are commercially driven yes and so they will always be thinking of the bottom line first um and the real difficulty in getting art through the pipeline uh, is proving its commercial viability. Yeah. I think Broadway is an interesting beast because what it's supposed to be is the cornerstone of art and commerce, right? It's, you're supposed to find a way to balance the two. And the with the idea being, if something is good enough and well-made enough, people will gravitate towards it. But theater is also a weirdly emotional beast where sometimes it defies logic where you can't necessarily explain why people are gravitating towards one thing. Even if you can say, well, this is not well-made, that's sloppy, that's a bad song, yada, yada. And then sometimes things that are very excellently made, but could be maybe cold or intellectualized audiences don't gravitate towards. The fact that the show was produced at the scale that it was in 1976 is absolutely amazing. And that's incredible. And is a testament to the cachet that Prince and Sondheim had at the time and as you said, like it's amazing that they use that opportunity and uh, to do this. You, they used, made this show their blank check um, and then followed it up with Sweeney Todd, which was uh, an even bigger blank check, which didn't clear as well, but was better received in a lot of ways. Right. Um, which, you know, we'll get to Sweeney Todd in the next episode, guys. So hold on oh, to your yeah. goddamn hats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's oh god I I I'm have to take like a week long break before I get into Sweeney Todd because I just I know need there's so much it's a it's so, a it's a meaty one. Uh, I am so mad. <laughs> this whole thing has been terrible. It's so, <laughs> I'm so angry. I do, I regret all of my choices, every single one of them. Um, final thoughts on the on Pacific Overtures where where it has. Where it, it leaves Broadway, wh- what, it, what it has left behind. Oh. In 10 words or less, Sam, make it as bowler hat words as or less. As concise bowler hat like as possible. Get 15 years uh, into two verses. Underappreciated, mm-hmm. becoming less so. Uh, smart. will probably stand test time. <laughs> to speak in, in pigeon English in that, in that quick moment, we'll probably stand the test of time. I think, I, th- I think it's one, if, if we, if there's a, if there is a period of, of cancellation and I don't, I don't think, I hope that it doesn't happen. I hope that it's not, you know, taking shows out behind the barn and putting a bullet in them. I hope it's I hope it's an evolutionary process of of 
slowly developing new work and then the slow disintegration or the, the slow fading of problematic works into the past. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that Pacific Overtures will be one of them, at least for a very long time. And I, I hope it isn't because I think it's very smart. Yeah. Um, I, think I, think it's, it's, I think it's very respectful. It is. It, I, as we continue, we'll see sort of what happens. I think we're sort of just in a moment where people have a lot of time on their hands and are very, uh, it's easier to be critical and to want to cancel than to have a conversation and try to build. Um, it's always easier to tear down than it is to build. And so rather than create more, we're trying to get rid of, you know, the 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 rest of it and that is not as beneficial as some people would like to think it may feel cathartic in the moment but it's right. not super beneficial no one ever gained anything by trying to erase history history is there to learn from not to uh, obliterate right you now it's yeah yeah that's all i gotta say history is there to learn from not to obliterate that is exactly and that is what pacific overtures really leaves behind if i do say so myself for sure, yeah, of course. And I think, you know, musical theater history is history. Mm -hmm. I also I also took that out of my ass in regards to Pacific Overtures. I didn't know what I was going to say. <laughs> it, was, it sounded great to me, Matt. You know? I went to college. And to quote the show, next. <clears throat> Rapid fire questions. The Sondheim rhyme, what's your favorite lyric in this show? Have some tea, my lord, some chrysanthemum tea. It's an herb that's superb for disturbances at sea. Love it. I love it. Um, I like the lyric about squash in Kanagawa. Mm. She's, she's fun. She's fun. I had a dream cast. Who would you like to see in a production of this show? Oh. Scarlett Johansson, right? Scarlett Johansson in every single role. One, one woman show. One woman um, show. You know, uh. I would trash Emma Stone, but I love Emma Stone, and she's she's owned her sins, you know. She's she's oh lovely. right, Aloha. Um, I was for a second I was like, what the fuck did Emma Stone do to you? And then I was yeah, like, yeah. oh right, Aloha. Yeah. She, she, atoned. she atoned. She atoned. Um, I love her very much. I I wish I could have seen the 2017 cast. I would I would kill to see that. Uh, if I couldn't see that, if I if I um, let's have Ken Watanabe as reciter. Uh, to have a, to have a real like a, a Japanese star reprising Mako's role with gravitas then, too like with gravitas uh, yeah. Yeah, and then when he becomes sexy. the emperor at the end it's like oh you're the king again damn man uh, um, he's so sexy <laughs> Jin Ha Jin Ha is fucking brilliant mm. um I saw him in uh M Butter M Butterfly a couple years ago mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic you know he did Hamilton for a while too so you know he's he's you know he's a talented stage actor and a musical theater actor I think he could do anything mm -hmm. um I don't know if they could sing, but uh, Stephen Yoon, I'm a big fan of Stephen Yoon. Mm -hmm. I think he can do no wrong. Um, let's have Jin, Jin Ha and Stephen Yoon, uh, Jin Ha as Kayama and Stephen Yoon as, you know, from The Walking Dead as, as Glenn. Let's have Stephen Yoon as uh, Manjudo. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's put Aquafina in there somewhere. I don't know if she could sing. Let's have her have as heard, the madam. I was gonna say. Aquafina's the madam. Have her raspy voice go, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, or Michelle Yao. I, I would like to see her as the madam. Michelle Yao. Yeah. As, as the mother, even. Yeah. Yeah, as the mother. She wouldn't, I don't know how funny she'd be, but she'd be, she'd be austere enough. Yeah. Dark. I like her a great deal. Um, mm -hmm. God, that's good. Where does this show rank for you in the Sondheim canon? It's not 
It's it's right in the middle. Mm. Right in the middle. I, I like it way better than The Frogs. I like it better than Forum. Um, I don't like it as much as Woods, Sweeney, Assassins. Mm. Um, it's probably probably somewhere around... I probably put it in the same tier as Merrily We Roll Along. So because Sondheim tends to come back in revivals as the most stripped down versions of himself, like we can't produce Sondheim lavishly really anymore. Right. This section is called... <clears throat> It's the little things, AKA there won't be trumpets. Get it, because there won't be trumpets in the orchestra. How would you strip down this show? And I will accept silly answers as well. If, okay. you, if you can think of any silly answers. I mean, the silliest answer would be to try to do a one man show, which would just be absolutely impossible. I don't um, know, give it to Aquafina. Yeah, sure. I, or you I know what, better yet, give it to Emma Stone. That's how to make her atone for her sins. Force Emma Stone to try to do a one woman version of Please Hello. Yes. Man, you know, I Ow. to pare it down. How could you really do? I think I think classic stage. I had like a ten person cast. I think that's probably as small as you could re realistically go. You might be able to do. I think you need to have the reciter mm -hmm. as a standalone. It, it, they're already all like quadruple cast, but I think you have the reciter as a standalone who becomes the emperor at the end. Um, I like that he's the shogun in the original. Mm. Um, you need both Kayama you, and, and Manjiro. Uh, you could probably, because none of the female characters interact, you could probably do it with one woman in the cast. Yeah. Um, which I think that might be what they did. I think that's what they did. No, they had it. There, had, there are uh, two women, I believe. Yeah, Megan, Megan Masako is in it too, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, who's also fantastic. She's, she's so smart and funny. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't, maybe you could do like a five or six person cast. I don't see it going any smaller, but it's yeah. such an ensemble show. You need a bunch of people. I was doing it in my head. I think really like the small, like the absolute smallest you could do would maybe be like seven. Uh, yeah. Yeah, six or seven. I think, yeah, if you, yeah. Because you need, because you need four people and someone in a tree. Yes, plus uh, our other two principals. And then that would be six. And I think you just need like at least one other person for, good measure to just round it out so you don't drive your actors absolutely insane but yep. i don't know i'm a i'm a, a masochist that way i or sadist i'm a sadist that way i mm -hmm. want to torture all the actors because screw them for being talented and sexy i want to be talented <laughs> and sexy too well um, you know at the other end of the pandemic we're probably going to see a lot of it it's going to be a lot of octuple cast shows because nobody's going to have the budget to yeah. put on a 30 person show for a couple of years yeah with three with three kazoos in the orchestra Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All spread across the, the theater. Yeah. Sam, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Matt. This has been a blast. I didn't think I was going to talk this much about Pacific Overtures. I definitely came into this interview being like, I don't know, I guess an hour. I, I don't have a lot to say. Apparently I do. I should, yeah. I should never underestimate my it's such own... It's a complex piece. You know, there's a lot to say about it. I was going to say, I shouldn't underestimate my own desire to talk. I think that's really what it is. <laughs> that too. And I, I am right there with you. Love it. Sam, where can people find you on social media if they want to find you? Oh, I'm on I'm on Instagram sometimes. I have a Twitter. I never use it. Um, mm. unless I'm mad at a politician. Um I'm not I'm mad at all of them. Both of those both of those are at soapbox Sam. Um a nickname I acquired in, in college at Emerson, actually. Um thank you, Chelsea LaBelle. Woo. Uh 
I am, yeah, on Facebook and I have a website, uh, you know, samcmock.com, but I actually have a second website. If anybody wants to read my blog, I have cmockrights.com, S-I-M-A-H-K, rights, not as in your second amendment rights, but as you're in your writing literature and publishing. Yes. You also have an OnlyFans account. It's called Summon in a Tree or yes. Soap Cock or Soap Cock Sam, as some might call him. Yes, exactly. And I do the whole thing actually sitting in a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing all of the different positions you can get. Yes. And it's all uh, and it's actually well. about being a voyeur. Yeah. yeah. The whole the whole thing's about being a watcher. It's great. It's <laughs> and it's very sex positive. I really appreciate all the hard work you're doing on OnlyFans. Emphasis on the hard, not on the work. Um <laughs> You can find me on Instagram at Matt Koplik, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, uh, rate, review, subscribe, uh, give it a five stars. If you don't like it and you want to let me know and you think that I'm an awful human being with terrible thoughts on theater, leave me a five-star review. That tells me all the nasty things you want to say to me. Uh, I don't care what you have to say as long as you give me the five stars. The algorithm is real, y'all. I'm trying to think of who I want to... Actually, you know what? You said it earlier. Anne Harada is going to be the diva that closes us out this week. We close out every episode with the diva. I'm going to have her close us out this week. Cool, cool lady. Yeah, I'll hope to meet her one day. I'll tell her exactly what I think about her solo in Seussical. Actually, (laughs) I saw her go on for the mayor's wife when I saw Seussical. It was Aaron Carter and Kathy Rigby, and she went on for the mayor's wife. And the woman who was her understudy as the bailiff in Horton, uh, People versus Horton the Elephant was not as good as she was. Bummer. Very big bummer. But anyway, that's not (laughs) Anne's fault. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, Catch us next week when we get into uh, a very, you know, say decently known Sondheim musical, Sweeney Todd. Bake yourself a little meat pie. Have that. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. She's a frothy little bubble with a flimsy kind of charm and with very little trouble. I could break her little alarm. Why would a fellow want a girl like her? So obviously unusual. Why can't a fellow ever once prefer a usual girl like me? Her cheeks are a pretty shade of pink, but not any pinker than a rose is. Her skin may be delicate and soft, but not any softer than a dose is. Her neck is no whiter than a swan's. She's only as dainty as a daisy. She's only as graceful as a bird. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.